Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing the Fishes podcast, episode 252. This week we have the Len Race Preservation Society talking to us about the wonderful weed of Mexico. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us. Appreciate you having us on. We also have Marty. Who's muted? <laughs> What's going on, Marty? Hey, Marty. Uh, he's uh, he's got some cool stuff to show us a little bit later on with uh, his greenhouse as well. So, nice. alrighty. Um, uh, uh, if you guys aren't familiar with the show, we we cover a ton of um, aquaponic and cannabis and gardening and microbial content. Um, you can also check us out at apmjclass.com. Uh, Marty and I have uh, an extremely extensive class that we have a ton of new content for uh, that we'll be in the process of, of rolling out here in the next couple of weeks. Um, uh, and we already have uh, quite a few hours, over 600, almost 700 slides now, uh, and uh, you know, full five days worth of, of filmed content uh, and, um, and a whole bunch more, um, tons of different topics, uh, breakdowns on all different types of things and uh, their various components and uh, a long format, um, you know, explanations of uh, pretty much anything you can think of for aquaponic cannabis. So definitely check that out. Um, you can also check us out over at apmjnutes.com, N-U-T-E-S, uh, for aquaponic cannabis nutrients if you do need those as well. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about um, Land and Race Preservation Society and, uh, and what you guys are <laughs> up to. Uh, yeah, so we've been pretty busy um this year so we are we just finished outfitting a new facility um specifically for the purposes of just doing as many open pollinations as we can um uh pretty much so we have two pollination sites right now and uh the new facility is kind of for um kind of going uh, diving deeper uh selection wise into some of these lines and Basically, so we've been meaning to get around to the Mexican lines in our collection over the last few years. I know I've been telling people, you know, who've been requesting some of the, um, some of our older Mexican stuff. Um, you know, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And um, it was just uh, taking a while to get this facility up and running. So now that we're there, we have our first um, open pollinations that are about to um, begin. And uh, so the first lines we're working with are uh, the Acapulco Gold and uh, the uh, Highland Oaxacan. So that's uh, kind of just the tip of the iceberg here. We're kind of going into the freezer and just breaking out all the old lines and uh, just uh, doing massive seed increases so that we can give them away for free on the website. Well, we got like a six or seven varieties we're doing over the course of this year. Yeah, that's right. If we can squeeze them in, we're, yeah. we're trying to do six or seven right. Provided everything gets set up in time, you know. Did you guys want so, to uh, real quick maybe just uh, define a couple of those things for some of our listeners who maybe don't know what like open pollination or even what land race are? Do you guys want to talk about what? Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure, yeah. So uh, basically, so uh, land race is kind of. Uh, 
it's a controversial term these days, I guess, uh, basically like they're, they're regional domestic hits. Um, so they're, it's, it's a cultivar that's been, um, kind of, basically it's been inbred for, you know, many, many, many years in a specific region, um, adapting and, um, you know, being selected, um, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of people hear the word land race and they think, you know, wild, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a wild strain. It's from, you know, it's, it's out there growing in the jungle or on the mountainside or whatever. And like, uh, it's actually, so land race actually refers to human domesticated cannabis, um, that have been inbred for sometimes, uh, thousands of years. Um, feral cannabis, um, is, is, you know, the wild, um, you know, uh, cousin, I guess, of, uh, you know, um, a lot of land race cultivars, like in India and Pakistan, you have, you know, cannabis is just everywhere. And, uh, um, you know, um, yeah. So the, anyway, so like land races are, um, are domesticated, human domesticated cannabis populations, uh, farm populations of cannabis. When it comes to a land race preservation, a lot of what we're trying to keep in mind is that we're working with these point of origin varieties whether it's uh, a variety that's been domesticated and farmed by uh, hashishians in Afghanistan, selected deliberately for generations and generations, or if it's something from, say, cashmere that's been growing wild on the mountainside and maybe pollinated with drifting pollen from neighboring valleys where people are cultivating cannabis. The point is there are varieties that have had the opportunity opportunity to really adapt to the environment that they've been grown in, whether that's by humans influencing it or mother nature, most likely in most cases, a combination of the two. It's really uh, these unique elements of the cannabis that come out are really uh, influenced by the terroir and a lot of the other factors that are specific to that origin. And base, I mean, so like, you know, land race cannabis are the building blocks for all modern cannabis varieties that we all you know, know and love. And, uh, um, we're trying to make the, uh, um, make those building blocks available, um, for the most part for free for most of our open pollinations are going to be available for free through the new website. Um, uh, whenever you buy a pack, you'll get a pack of, you know, a free pack of 24, uh, open pollinated, uh, pure, uh, land race, um, starting with our Mexican stuff. Um, so that's the plan. And um, so people have a large enough population to, uh, um, you know, play around with and do their own open pollinations and find a few keepers in there. And, you know, we're being pretty, um, we're leaving a lot in the gene pool for people to play around with. Um, we're eliminating just the most obvious outliers that have, you know, intersex traits that are going to make it hard for people to grow, um, you know, uh, indoors and, and, and that sort of thing. But um but yeah, and the, uh, I guess the reason that we've been focusing on Mexico uh, this year is, um, you know, the exciting news, Mexico um, decriminalizing and they're working on figuring out, um, you know, um, kind of a legal adult use framework at the moment. And, uh, you know, that's just around the corner. And so we want to, um, you know, kind of uh, make, make these cultivars available to, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, people who are looking to grow, um, commercially down in Mexico and want to maybe, um, grow their, their regional cultivar that maybe isn't, um, 
as prevalent anymore as it was, you know, 40 years ago. Um, we have stuff that's kind of, you know, been locked in a time capsule. And so we can kind of give these seeds away and like, let these, um, let these producers play around with them and find, you know, the truest expression for their, for their area and for what they're looking for and maybe do some back crosses on whatever, um, you know, regional genetics they are currently working with. And, um, yeah, cause I know I personally would love to be able to go and go to a shop and buy some, you know, um, Acapulco gold grown in, you know, Acapulco and, yeah. uh, or go down to Oaxaca and see fields of Highland Oaxacan gold growing on the mountainside. Yeah. yeah. And I know that the question was asked about uh, open pollination a couple minutes ago. And I just want to throw in that the great thing about the, the work that can be done with these varieties. So you have beans that are collected out at this point of origin. You bring them back to a cultivation facility or to your outdoor plot where you're going to be growing out your, uh, your full-term plants. And over a couple of generations, uh, if you can set aside the females and the males that do best in your area outdoors, the ones that uh, express the least intersect traits indoors, you can, uh, by keeping a couple of males and a couple of females, kind of narrow that population down um, to an, an authentic expression of that variety, but one that's a little bit more manageable for your average cultivator. Someone who's not necessarily focused on growing like the wild type varieties might look for something that's been open pollinated for a couple generations, just so it's a little bit more acclimatized to our modern growing techniques. If that made sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so what are some of the different unique traits that you're seeing in the Mexican cultivars? Um, well, the Acapulco is, is just extremely narrow leaf, uh, very, um, classical sativa dominant it's 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 the mexican that you're going to find in you know most you know skunk skunk lines and you know your sours and uh um it's it's very like the the nose on it's very recognizable um it's it's um i think it's probably the most aside from the oaxacan i guess it'd probably be the most popular um bag seed that was collected in the um I mean, my father started collecting Acapulco gold bag seed every time I came to town in the like, 64 through, uh, you know, 1970, I say it was when he was, uh, is all the baggies that I inherited. Um, that's when that, that's when those selections of his started. Um, and the Oaxacan stuff he started getting in like the early to mid seventies. And, um, yeah, so these are, these are definitely, um, fun to play around with. Um, what, uh, Ryan brought in the Highland Oaxacan for this project. So you can tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah. So the Highland Oaxacan, um, that's a seed stock that's uh, been preserved from the 1970s um, by Alter Ego. And uh, what's really fun about that cultivar is, is you, when the seeds start growing up, it's uh, pretty apparent. They're really different uh, than the uh, Acapulco gold. You know, the Acapulco gold has your long thin leaves kind of shoots out pretty fast um and the oaxacan acts more like uh, it actually acts more like uh, your michoacan line right where it um it'll express almost like a hash plant it has very broad leaves at first sort of low shrubby stature and then a couple weeks in like after the first month it starts to come up and sort of slowly ascend narrow out and then um I'm expecting once we once we hit it into flower that it'll act like what the Michoacan does, which is uh, Michoacan is not too far away from Oaxaca, 
and the mitochon variety that we've been working with in the collective gets it stretches very rapidly and the leaves go from being pretty broad to thinning way out and by the time it's like week three or four of flower it looks like something you'd see in pictures of old mexican weed from the 1970s very tall colas thin thin almost single blade leaves up to the top yeah long spears yeah nice yeah. serrations it's got this uh the michoacan has a really really neat uh it's a like almost like a violet blue thing going on too it's not quite your traditional purple that comes out in the afghani or pakistani lines it's a, a different purple expression that's been really fun to see and so i'm hoping hoping we get some anthocyanin content in the oaxacan too i've noticed the the caribbean stuff and I, I would imagine it carries over to the mexican stuff you get that kind of more fuchsia purple instead of that darker purple yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, definitely, and it's fun because the Michoacan also has some uh, some pink pistolate development midway through flower. It doesn't doesn't stick around till the end, but it goes through like a pinking and reddening before it gets all the way orange. Very cool. Uh, what other some of the other interesting things that you found uh, doing all this open pollination? Uh, uh, you guys get a chance to really. Um, uh, play with a lot more than most people uh, in terms of seeing, you know, some of the other different mutations um, that are less common. What have you found anything like that in your, your seed hunts? Uh, yeah, there's, there's uh, the, <laughs> the mutations that I've been seeing the most actually are coming from a different uh, side of our uh, preservation work right now. So oh, the yeah. stuff that um, there's some cashmere and some cashmere hybrids that we're growing out right now to do another increase for the site. And, uh, um, very interesting, uh, like true variegation, not, uh, just where, you know, um, an entire leaf is just completely white basically. And, uh, the rest of the plants just perfectly, uh, you know, green and healthy and, and happy. And, um, but as far as, um, the Mexican stuff, like honestly, everything has been fairly uniform. It's been, um, I mean, aside from the nose, the stem rub on, on all these babies right now are, uh, very unique that Oaxacan the other day just blew us away. Um, oh my God, yeah. Just extremely, um, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, just some very interesting um, and not, I mean, these are, you know, uh, smells and uh, smells that I've, I've, I haven't come across. Um, yeah, I've never I, smelled anything like that Oaxacan before. Yeah, so I mean, uh, it, um, I have, I have, uh, I have really high hopes seeing these, um, seeing what everyone's going to do with these when they're out there in the community and, um, you know, seeing, um, you know, a resurgence of, uh, the popularity of Mexican cannabis. Cause I do feel like, you know, when people hear Mexican cannabis, you know, a lot of people automatically, there's a negative, negative connotation in their mind. When they hear that word, they think, um, they think brickweed. They think, um, you know, um, swag or whatever, you know, like seeded bud that's, that's, you know, it's, you know, um, whereas my association with it is completely different because I just, I grew up um, hearing, you know, the exaltations of uh, how amazing, you know, uh, this region or that region um, in Mexico, you know, what the, the amazing flower they produce there, et cetera. And, and so um, I want to share that with, um, with everybody. And I'd love, I'd just, I'd be thrilled to see, um, you know, Mexican commercial producers growing their, their traditional 
um, cultivars down there and really bringing that um, just, you know, Mexican, Mexican land race cannabis grown in the terroir that the, you know, that these, that their ancestor, uh, you know, that the, the original lines that these beans came from were, were cultivated in. And um, I, anyways, that's, that's, yeah. that's yeah. what I'm, I'm extremely um, hopeful and excited for this project. Um, 100%. I mean, hopefully also like it would be, it would be really wonderful to be able to one day work with some producers down in Mexico now that uh, legalization is impending. I mean, like, let's say you're a farmer who's growing outdoors in Oaxaca. If you're, if you're planting a field of, of, uh, of a really a commercial american line like let's say like like let's say you plant a field of gelato it's not going to do that well outdoors on the mountainside in oaxaca but let's say you plant a field of something like a highland oaxacan that's undergone a couple generations of selection to make it more commercially viable you're going to have plants that are going to be better suited for the environment there you're going to end up using fewer pesticides that are going to run off into your local waterways because those plants are going to be adapted to the natural pressures from that region. They're going to be uh, using fewer nutrients and fertilizers because the plants are going to be having their DNA, the, uh, the needs that are provided for them by the soil and that kind of nutrition that's down there on the mountainside in Oaxaca. Yeah, that, the true genetic expression will start to show itself and after a few generations if they're making their own seeds. It's just going to be uh, just incredible. And I'm really, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to see that uh, come to fruition. The, um, uh, I was just going to say, so there aren't a lot of people, you know, kind of grow, doing seed lines more for hot weather uh, areas such as the southern U.S. And it sounds like this might be, uh, you know, a great way for people to try and, you know, start working on some of those issues. Um, what are some of the traits that you see in the more, you know, heat tolerant uh, lines? Um, you guys seem like a, a good person to ask, um, uh, you know, in terms of what are some of the traits that kind of, you know, show more in the, in the heat tolerant, humidity tolerant strains versus, you know, or maybe even, uh, you know, in contrast, what strains or traits definitely don't work uh, in those? Well, I think um, that's a really good question. So um, I, so the Acapulco, I think would be an excellent candidate for, um, for the American South. I think um, like Mississippi down through, you know, uh, like Northern Florida. Um, I mean, so I, honestly for, for, for the hot weather, um, like Southern Florida and like that, you know, that area and, and you know uh i guess thereabouts i would honestly recommend like our, our our south indian stuff that would be like that would grow like a dream down there um with the high humidity um long season um i could see some incredible uh you know equatorial flower coming out of there um the acapulco being lowland and being coastal i feel like would do amazing down there too um, but honestly, I think like, uh, some of our Southeast Asian or Colombian stuff, um, Panama lines and a little bit more rain, like those would do really well. Yeah. And the South Indian, I mean, the South Indian, the Burmese, all that stuff would, um, would be incredible down there. Um, mainly because they're, you know, um, they are just, they're adapted. They're perfectly adapted to that. You know, the, the super narrow leaves. Um, the, uh, 
kind of willowy stems on a lot of these are really able to withstand uh, high winds without breaking. So, um, you know, when hurricane season comes, it's, you know, you'll, you'll definitely have some survivors if your field gets hit hard. Um, you know, the, uh, the bud structure, um, you know, I've seen some Brazilian stuff actually from our collection, like do incredibly well, like uh, on the Oregon coast here, the North coast, where it's just, you know, uh, it's definitely hit or miss after September 1st. Um, and so you can have a season that's just completely just rained out until Thanksgiving. And, um, a few years back, I was growing some of our, uh, doing some Brazilian selections up here on the coast. And we had just a terrible season. Like everything I was growing in the Valley, um, was just, I had a lot of crop loss that year, uh, tubotritis and, and, uh, you know, that was, that was kind of heartbreaking because I was some of the Pakistani stuff I was working that year. But uh, when I was out here visiting um, and seeing my dad's, uh, well, my dad was doing it, the Brazilian stuff and some of the plants had gotten blown over. We'd had a pretty bad storm, but like this was, this was on Thanksgiving and I went out there and I was, I was picking ripe buds off of some of these Brazilian um, lines that were just laying there in the grass. Uh, had been rained on for weeks, not a speck of mold. Um, happy dark purple um you know open bud structure so i think that lends a bit to it as well but i think there's just something um you know these have been uh they've just been selected so so thoroughly for i mean i don't know how long but hundreds if not thousands of years in these regions to you know withstand um you know any you know monsoons um you know uh, hurricanes, uh, just terrible, wet, humid, uh, conditions. And, uh, I think, you know, those are definitely lines that would do really well in the South. I think if you like skirt the perimeter of the, uh, Caribbean, um, and the Gulf of Mexico, I feel like that's a really good way to kind of gauge like what lines would, you know, be, uh, you know, traditional lines. Cause I know there's, I know there's a lot of, um, you know, American and Dutch, um, hybrids being grown in the Caribbean right now on a lot of the islands. I know Jamaica, they have a lot of that. Um, but, uh, I think, you know, traditional, um, equatorial or, um, you know, especially lowland varieties from Colombia, Brazil, um, Panama, um, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, that all those places, like you're going to find some really solid, um, uh, phenos that'll just be outstanding, uh, um, in that climate. Even some of the lowland Mexican too. Oh yeah, for like sure. The, like the Michoacan, for example. Like Veracruz and and uh, yeah. So that's interesting. So uh, what a on that you, you got me thinking with the the low mold. Um, even though it was getting rained on, what terpene profiles are you finding? Um, kind of in those types of cultivars, or um, is there any unique kind of terpene profiles that you're finding in the um, uh, with the stuff that you're work, you're finding with your open pollination that maybe is a little bit uh, unusual or out of the ordinary or, you know. Yeah, so the uh, Michoacan has uh, just an incredibly high percentage of a terpene called selenidine. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, it was the first time I had heard of it was when we did some testing on the Michoacan. And uh, that is... Um, that, so the, the selenidine phenos are probably our favorite on that line. Like by far the effect is, um, well, super, super clear headed and, uh, 
relaxing uh, physically. It's like, it's physiologically, it's not necessarily like uh, some of the zippier Mexicans. It's more a uh, lays back, doesn't get your heart rate accelerating or anything, but it still is very emotionally uplifting. It's like really cerebral and creative. Psychedelic. Psychedelic is all hell in higher doses for sure. Um, and it's fun because there's like the other pheno that pops up a lot is one that uh, that is, uh, tests pretty even in carifiline and terpinaline and osamine. And that one, that one gets a little bit trippier, racier, gigglier. Um, but then there's the one that uh, Patrick is mentioning a second ago. That's the uh, selenidine pinene pheno. And that one, uh, that one's sort of like the, the, the yang to the yin of the other one, so to speak. Um, that one definitely, it's one that I've, I've given to friends who have uh, like really serious anxiety, physiological anxiety, panic conditions, and as something to smoke during the daytime that's like physically relaxes them, but gets them moving. And I feel like it's effects like that. Like, man, I, I really can't find anything like that on your average dispensary shelf. And that's what gets me so excited about a lot of this preservation work is finding an area of cannabis that I didn't know existed, you know, like an effect that's, uh, that's emotionally uplifting, gets me creative, gets me relaxed, like takes care of my body and my mind. I feel like that's a rare combination to find like that. But, yeah. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, if you have uh, more on that topic, please, please go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's a correlation there between um, uh, the uh, mold resistance and that terpene profile, but um, that line is extraordinarily mold resistant. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, in fact, I've never seen her, um, you know, I've never seen any mold on her. Actually, yeah, I actually had a room this winter where uh, it was a, a bit of a powdery mildew disaster. Um, but the, the Michoacan was the only plant in the whole room that did not have a speck, and it was the longest running too. Like I ran her fifteen weeks and didn't see powdery mildew on her the entire time. Never seen botrytis on her. So yeah, and that's actually not something I can say about Coco Gold that I have grown out in the past. So that's, I have found, and I don't know if this, I mean, this, this is probably due to, you know, um, poor selection at some point along, along the way in the, you know, making of some of these hybrids that where they were using the Acapulco and like maybe the shorter flowering Fino or the, uh, whatever, you know, whatever the desirable traits they were going after, you know, they probably weren't being exposed to the pressures, um, but they ended up, uh, locking in this recessive, uh, um, susceptibility to uh, powdery mildew. So that's one of the things, like I know Cindy 99, um, you know, some, some cuts of sour diesel I've grown. Um, sour diesel like tends to be pretty, pretty resilient in those conditions. But I mean, um, you know, I've, a lot of the skunks I've grown, a lot of the Cindy, um, the Jack, um, and you know, poorly selected. Uh, anyone who's grown out the uh, Barney's Farm Acapulco Gold and who's dealing with PM at the time can, you know, it's 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 you know, it's a wonderful smoke. I think it's a Pakistani Acapulco hybrid. Um, you know, definitely not uh, not putting down Barney's, um, but uh, that that plant gets it bad, and it's a it's a pretty good example of um, you know 
the PM's susceptibility in some of the uh, older Acapulco cuts um, that were going around and people were breeding with in the 70s and 80s, right? Probably more like 80s. Um, so that's one of the things I'm trying to bring to this, uh, this project is selecting yeah. for, um, you know, uh, we're, we're going to do some pretty heavy pressure tests on these. So there's going to be, yeah. these are going to be exposed to PM. They're going to be exposed to all kinds of uh, stresses to uh, ensure that the, um, those resilient uh, genes make it through. And that'll be, yeah. that'll probably be the next round um, of pollination that we do. This is just mainly so we can get, get these out here so people can can start playing around with uh, yeah. uh but uh when you're talking about uh someone unintentionally locking out a resistance along the line while selecting for a shorter flowering pheno that's a really good example of why open pollination is always best practice when you're trying to preserve land races instead of hitting one male of one female because yeah provided sure. these you, you stress make sure that you're not passing on any like blatant intersects or any other serious problems if you have that diversity of a couple different males and females in there, ideally more than a couple, then you can uh, you can do a little bit of that rough selection, but make sure that you're not necessarily locking anything out because like we don't necessarily know what genes are linked to what other genes for sure, all hundred percent of the time. You know, you don't want to accidentally, for example, lock out some pathogen or pest resistance that could be proven really helpful in the future. For sure. Sorry, I was just uh, to fix some test up. We had some questions from chat. One asked if you're genetically sequencing any of the land races. Uh, Ryan can talk on that a little bit. We've been looking for- I would for, love to. We, we would, <laughs> short answers, yeah, we would love to. It's uh, in the future. We've been doing a lot of research on uh, trying to, uh, I think the technology is gonna be there within the next couple of years to be able to do that sort of thing out of a smaller facility such as ours um where we don't we don't necessarily have like a large team of folks working for us or anything like that um but it's uh there's there's definitely the technology is is coming out uh but not at the moment short answer is no not right now but in the future i think i think it's um i think it's important uh to to get that get that done though um for these lines and kind of have like a road map for people to kind of trace the lineage of some um you know some of these modern hybrids that you there's no way you'd ever i mean you know some of these that have you know i don't even know where to start um but uh you know you're you're not going to know like what you know um I, see for me like i personally love to know like what region of afghanistan did like was this hash plant source to make this and this cross which ended up being you know uh what what's you know a good modern line is a an example, you know, like uh, um, let's uh, like OGKB or something like that. Some of some really resinous cookies strain or something like what, what Pakistani is in there bringing the resin, you know. Yeah, to have that genetic um, information so people could go back and be like, oh, okay, interesting. So at least at this time, you know, the hash plants grown in this particular valley were, you know, um, you know, producing this type of uh, effect and you can kind of go back maybe and, and go through some of those uh, populations if they're still around and, uh, you know, um, kind of seek out those traits because, um, you know, that's something that I think the, um, the modern uh, cannabis world could definitely use. 
got another question. Uh, what are the some of the longest running cultivars, meaning weeks of flower that you guys have um, preserved? Uh, I would say 27 weeks. That was straight into 12, 12. Uh, so yeah, 20, 24 weeks, 20, 20, I'm sorry, 27 weeks. Over half a year. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so we had, a, let me look at the other questions here. Um, uh, where did you gather your original land rate stock? If you can talk about that. Yeah. Um, well, so we have, uh, we have genetics from a lot of different collectors um, who have kind of donated, like the, a lot of the Mexican stuff they're working with is uh, the current Acapulco run we're doing is from Woodstock Pharmacy. That was uh, kindly donated to us by our friends over at Woodstock Pharmacy. They uh, are very passionate about keeping that line around in the, in the gene pool and uh, giving out for free. <laughs> so our goal is uh, to be able to, um, give those as freebies with some of our uh, hybrids and other lines that are more worked on our website, which is going to be launching here again pretty soon. Right. Yeah. Hopefully in the next day or two. Um, the uh, bulk of my personal um, seed collection started um, with uh, seeds that were collected by my father um, during his, you know, the course of his life and his travels Um he was in the military. He spent time in Southeast Asia um, in the early early mid '60s, um, and uh, like Thailand, Laos, uh, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia. Um, and so he 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 got a lot of interesting lines from those areas. Um, and he was he was very very much a fan of um, Mexican cultivars and um, also um, Panama Red was his favorite his his all time favorite. So those those are lines that he, he collected extensively, um, uh, Brazilian stuff too. Um, but, uh, yeah, long story short though, that's, uh, that's where the bulk of my seed stock came from when I started doing a lot of this work. And, um, you know, a lot of, uh, he was a journalist and a documentarian as well. And so he, um, he had access to a lot of, uh, interesting people and interesting places that, you know, were, um, not, super accessible at that time and um uh he had a lot of um you know friends uh he had met in his uh, during his time in the military and uh, they um were you know trapped they when they got out of the military you know they were trying to trying to get right trying to get their heads uh back after you know everything they'd seen and so a lot of them decided to spend some time uh you know, going up and down, uh, the hippie trail and, uh, some of them doing like security for some of these tours. Um, and, uh, you know, so a lot of our stuff was actually collected, um, on a trip in 1969 that snaked its way through, uh, Afghanistan, uh, and ended in, ended in Nepal, I believe. Um, and so that's where the Kashmiri Cernu came from, and that's where the um, our Milka Mazar came from, and some others. Um, and you know, we have a lot of stuff that was donated to us by um, his military buddies who were uh, living in Northern California after the war. Um, yeah, 
So um, my dad is really enamored with the culture that he encountered um, down there, the farming practices, um, just the way of life, the, the, the cultures he encountered um, uh, had a profound effect on him. And uh, he spent a lot of time in the Philippines as well. And that was um, why I'm, I'm really excited, actually. I just saw, because um, all of my Filipino projects in the past have been um, like, those are some of the longer flowering ones I've worked with too. For that person that asked about that, those were always no less than 20, uh, 20 weeks. Um, and just mostly just highly, highly intersexed. And, you know, generally like I would grow them out, just the, the effects, uh, it's one of my favorite Southeast Asian sativas, um, effect wise, but like, as far as like, it's not commercially viable. Um, th those lines are not commercially viable if you were trying to grow for, you know, I mean, for, for, for many reasons, the intersex rate was so high. I mean, you definitely have at least moderately seeded flower, but the smoke was great. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't mind picking seeds out of weed to, to roll a joint, but um, the uh, team over at Khalifa Genetics out of Spain just announced the, um, I've been kind of keeping an eye on this project of theirs for a while. So they're working on a Filipino line um from seeds that, that were donated to them and uh they have they are about to drop the beans i think in the next few months here so um i'm really excited they've gotten um i think it's 14 to 17 weeks is the flowering time on those and the bud structure and the pictures i just saw um were definitely uh familiar and so i'm really glad that's out there because those guys are really good about um about the way they do their their line work and the uh a bunch and like mainly they they will not release something unless it's been, until it's stabilized so very excited to be growing some filipino uh, cannabis again but um but yeah so i mean um i don't know if that answers that question but yeah hopefully um <laughs> Someone asked me if I'd ever tried bio balls and grow buckets. I haven't. Um, I think there's better ways to provide microbes, especially with some of the work that I've been doing since then. So uh, that was in the mix of questions there. Um, do you work directly with any indigenous farm Mexican farmers? Uh, or do you have any longer term plans to work with any of the, the local farmers in Mexico for longer term preservation? Um, no, we're currently not working with any indigenous farmers down there yet. That is that is the um, that's the goal um, over the next you know uh, year or two. We're going to be reaching out to people, and if people want to want to reach out to us and um, you know uh, start chatting um, about you know some collaboration, like we're definitely open to that because I think it's that's one of the things that I you know we're really um, I don't know. Uh, so I, it makes me nervous watching places like Thailand and Mexico and Colombia um, and all these African countries um, who have these incredible, incredible indigenous cultivars that are true. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're I these treasures. What's that? I'm sorry. There was a lag. I apologize. Oh, no, no worries. I have terrible reception in this building. Um, so it, it makes me nervous, you know, thinking about, you know, um, 
large scale commercial cultivation um, by some of these corporations in, uh, um, you know, these equatorial nations and um, with how hemp is being pushed on farmers in traditional, uh, you know, cannabis cultivation uh, areas of uh, India right now and Pakistan. Um, so, uh, you know, we are definitely trying to kind of create like a, you know, as, as, as large of a database of, you know, um, genetic material um, before this happens. And I know that's kind of, kind of on the minds of like all preservationists right now is, you know, legalization is happening. It's already taking place. Um, you know, Thailand has actually been pretty good about, um, you know, uh, under, they recognize that they have something special in their, um, uh, you know, uh, in their cannabis varieties. And, uh, and I think India uh, as well. Um, there's some countries, you know, I know, um, you know, in Colombia, some of the stuff I've seen coming out of there kind of worries me, um, you know, with, with corporate um, uh, cultivation of, of, of uh, American and, and just Western poly hybrids um, in an area that's, you know, has some of the most uh, sought after, you know, cannabis varieties in the world. And, you know, um, Colombian cannabis is special for a reason. It's not necessarily the best climate in a lot of cases to grow cannabis. Um, but those cultivars that do grow there, grow there um, uh, amazingly well. And um, they are uh, perfectly adapted to that area. So it would make more sense to me if you want to um, be a successful large commercial operation in Colombia or, or wherever um, that has indigenous cannabis cultivars. You know, a lot of the, um, these African nations as well, um, like that is, that would in my mind, that would just make more sense to grow the, you know, the, the native, native cannabis. And, uh, you know, you're gonna have an easier time as a cultivator. You're not going to be dealing with as much pest pressure. You're not going to be dealing with, uh, pathogens. You're not gonna be dealing with, um, you know, uh, having to irrigate, you know, the hell out of the plants just to get them, you know, through the season. Um, you know, I would, you know, I would say a lot of these cultivars could be dry farmed, um, if they're grown, you know, using the right, the right techniques in some of these areas. And um, I think that should be the future of large scale um, commercial cannabis cultivation. Um, something also that's uh, worth mentioning when you're talking about uh, impending legalization, um, something that we've seen here in the US as uh, legalization has unfolded uh, even a couple of years into legalization here in Oregon, we're six years into recreational legalization. And we've seen the, um, the diversity of like, even modern polyhybrid commercial cultivars have kind of narrowed and bottlenecked in their diversity. There's definitely a phenomenon of certain elements of the cannabis gene pool being more uh, suitable for uh, commercial production and sales on the rec market, or at least perceived uh, to be what the consumer wants as well. And as a result, uh, seeing kind of a narrowing in what uh, larger producers are willing to grow. And it concerns me. And a lot of the times, like a lot of the times people's tastes as smokers for folks who aren't necessarily like deep into cannabis genetics and uh, all, tasting all kinds of different varieties. Like a lot of people's tastes will kind of be determined by what is most popular and the highest quality that's available on the market. And I think uh, what's important as preservationists is to keep this work out there and to 
I don't know, I try and smoke down as many people as I can with the different, uh, different flower, as many kinds of flowers as I can, because I feel like having access to those experiences and those, the true diversity of the gene pool is uh, something that's both uh, going to be rarer and uh, more difficult to get at as uh, legalization unfolds worldwide and also of increasing importance as some of these uh, different cultivars have some very unique medical and recreational effects. I don't know, like, shoot, dude, I know that a lot of these cultivars have touched my life in an important way. And I think it's important to keep those around so that other people can be helped by the same way, in the same way by this plant. And what, uh, what worries me a little bit as a preservationist is seeing, um, I saw an article recently and I think it was, I forget if it was the post or the New York Times, literally tied, but the headline was something like, as um, marijuana unfolds in Mexico, um, import varieties like Bubba Kush are becoming popular. And I think it's awesome that people are getting to taste Bubba Kush all over the world, but also let's not have that be what ends up pushing out all these traditional cultivars from the sites in which they've been grown for hundreds and hundreds of years. Let's have that be added to the diversity of our cannabis genome. And I think like regional branding too in these areas, like they don't realize, you know, that, you know, the brand Acapulco Gold, the brand Oaxacan, you know, Oaxacan Purple, Oaxacan Gold, um, yeah. have like carry serious weight with, with um, you know, with a lot of people. And, you know, people hear that and be able to try the true authentic, you know, um, line grown in the region, you know, where it, you know, became what it is, um, I think is something that, you know, I hope, you know, some of these uh, larger um, outfits kind of start to pick up on and realize the potential there, because I think uh, it's huge, you yeah. know, I mean and Shoot, even in the Western commercial sphere, and I know I've, I've worked as a bud tender on the recreational market on the, on the West Coast. I know you have as well as five points. And I've, I know we both had the experience of someone from an older generation coming in and asking, hey, where's the tie stick? Where's the Panama red? Or the temple balls. The temple balls. Oh, my God. Where's the Nepali temple balls, dude? I'm trying to find some good temple balls on the rec market is practically an impossible task. Yeah. We uh we had some other questions. Um uh, and I think this is a really good one. Uh should we be chasing the dream of land race gaining strength and potency to be something we should we can work towards um starting from open pollination within a few generations? Or is this um or or do you really have to kind of use them to back cross? Uh, with kind of more well well refined strains that's a really good question and one that i think uh, is a great one to ask you let's see if i can so i would say um it's absolutely possible through selection uh, um to select some you know just uber potent um especially from equatorial populations you know you're 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 not too far removed from you know um Think like three or four generations of selection if that you know you'd be able to find i mean anyone who's tried haze or any haze hybrids that's you know those are equatorials that's those are all land races um granted they're hybridized and you know you get that extra boost from hybrid vigor and etc but i think um i think no i think definitely like our panama red i think is a perfect example um it's been heavily selected um you know while keeping a diverse gene pool like we have um, 
four different offshoots of that line that we've kept going. And um, each one is extremely, you know, potent in its own way. Um, so, I mean, you're looking at, uh, I do think that's, that's a very realistic um, and achievable goal um, for any like serious preservationist, uh, you know, home breeder uh, who is looking to create like their, you know, ideal, um, you know, uh, version of, of, a, of a certain cultivar. I do want to say though, that, um, you know, uh, the magic of some of these lines does not lie in the high THC, um, you know, content of the flower. It's, it's in the nuanced effect. It's in the, it, it, in the way that it hits you, like nothing else you've smoked has ever hit you. Um, it's, you know, it's the terpene profiles it's, um, you know, and so I think, like, let's say some of the Southern Indian stuff, I don't know if I would want to raise the potency on some of those because it would be downright terrifying, I think. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, anyone who's tried, you know, Malawi from ACs grown that out, um, that's a perfect example of a very high potency. And I know there's, okay, before anyone says this too, like, I know there's like some people that don't necessarily trust the breeding work done on that line. And I would say I'm not one of those people. Um, I've watched that line develop over, um, you know, the last 10 plus years. And uh, um, yeah, it's, I've, I've watched the potency subtly grow and the, the, uh, the testing they've been doing and I've smoked it and uh, I've grown it. And I would say it's, you know, a perfect example of a very, very, very well, thoroughly worked African line. And uh, it is absolutely has that, that magic of that Malawi um, sativa, extremely, um, you know, bright, um, but extremely potent and, and definitely psychedelic. And if you overdo it with that, you're, you know, <laughs> you're going to understand like <laughs> clinging on to your edges of your seat for dear yeah. life. <laughs> I, had a, I had a chance to go visit a, a grow up in, in Nyanga up in Zimbabwe, which is probably not all that different genetically. Um, and again, just like you're saying, super racy, super incredibly cerebral sativas that were almost borderline psychedelic and super high in alpha pinene, you know, almost smells like lemon pine salt. Or like, sure. like, or like, you know, old school pine saw that smelled more like pine than, than anything else. Um, really has that, that heavy pining. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Yeah. I think that's something that you just said, Patrick, that I really liked was uh, potent uh, in its own way. Because when we're talking potency, a lot of, a lot of, uh, it's a lot of different things that can mean. I mean, there's a lot of very like, that your high THC, pretty monoterpene, smack you in the face stuff that you come across a lot. But there's also like, like take uh, the, um, the, the Sirnu, the Kashmiri Sirnu, I think is a great example of this. Um, I know you found a pheno out of the F, was it the F2 population in knockout gas pheno, as uh, you like to call it. Um, this, this particular pheno, the Kashmiri Sirnu, it's definitely like, it's chunky, it's resinous enough. And uh, like close close together bracts finishes fast enough that you could run it in a commercial facility and when you smoke it 
it doesn't necessarily like smack you in the face or uh, like completely get you locked to the couch, but guaranteed within an hour, I am always fast asleep in a deep, unmoving like slumber. Blissful slumber. Like, it's like, like the knockout gas. Like you said, like someone pumping knockout gas into the room. Slowly HH Holmes in you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or like I, I smoke a day and I'm like, oh, maybe I want to go and do. And then I wake up the next morning on the couch, having had the best sleep of my life without realizing it. And like that to me is like very, very potent in that respect. But I'd have a hard time finding that in some other lines. Like, like you can't get that from a Malawi or like, a, <laughs> like a, any of these, like any of these Mexican, like, a, like Acapulco will not do that to you. But it'll be very potent in another kind of way. And so that's why, I like, what's really fun about these uh, seeing what the what happens when you develop certain aspects really intensely, like certain aspects of the high that have been sort of latched on to these different varieties and people have kind of pushed it in those particular directions over the generations. I think the, um, another part of that too, um, part of that question that I guess is, is relevant is that it depends on if you're working with like a raw Afghan line that's been grown for hash and selected for hash. Um, I mean, Himalayan populations too, I guess, for for sure, um, you're you're gonna have to do a little bit more digging. I would start with larger populations um, because they haven't been thoroughly selected for the potency of that one specific. Um, the seeds were selected from a field of thousands of different phenotypes, and there wasn't like a whole you know. There's no way to tell. Uh, I guess when you're when you're you know rubbing charas, I guess that's that's a little different. You might you know, set aside seeds from a, spe a specific plant that made insane charis. And I know there are farmers that are doing that um, for sure. Um, but in places like Afghanistan and places like Lebanon and places, um, you know, they're making, uh, uh, you, you know. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but are there places working on specific, and I'm sure they are as far as the land race stuff, but is anyone other than traditional producers working on anything such as a charis producer, because it seems like to me, a charis producer could almost wash their plant, like have the first set of trichomes, um, you know, matured because those trichomes, you know, mature out and, and are ripe before the, the plants really fully finished off maturing, right? With some of those longer. For sure. Uh, and that, that's why they're able to collect that. Um, uh, for those of you that I've ever never been to a, a place that does this, actually, why don't you explain what charis is and the process and, and why it is that they do it? Because um, a lot of people just kind of think that it's like something that's kind of like, a oh, they just don't quite understand that they should wait for the bud. And it, it's not about that at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, so charis is, um, so charis is actually like, so it's a word that's used throughout the hash world. Um, you know, the Central Asian, uh, the, uh, so I mean, it, Charis, you know, you, you talk to someone in Afghanistan or Pakistan and Charis is hash, you know, it's, it's, uh, but in, in this sense that we're discussing the Charis, um, that's hand rubbed from live plants, um, in the Himalayas from India through Nepal and, and, uh, you know, um, I've, you know, I've heard, uh, I've heard tell of people doing this in Jamaica as well. This is in, um, in Jamaica, they call it gum. Oh, okay. Right on. <laughs> I, anyone who's seen that uh, that episode of uh, 
strain hunters <laughs> has seen knows what I'm talking about. But um, uh, yeah, so so basically, like you are getting, um, you know, you're it's 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 basically like the original live resin is how I is how I describe it. It's like you're you're collecting, you know, fresh, um, bright, uh, you know, as in for, as far as effect, you know, uh, resin from these plants and, um, you know, and then curing it into this incredible product that, um, you know, it's shelf stable and it's, it's, uh, for these farmers, it's, it's, um, it's the way to collect the hash from the plants before, cause it's so humid up there. Like that's the thing, but most people don't realize like, it's not, it, you know, um, people trying to introduce, um, modern hybrids into these areas. Like I don't, you know, some are successful, I'm sure, but I mean, it's not exactly a friendly climate for growing, you know, most modern cannabis, but these cultivars just do incredibly well up there and the humidity and the high altitude and the rain, the monsoon lasts up there until, you know, sometimes all the way through September and October, like it's, you know, um, starting in July. So, I mean, the entire flowering time, in a flowering period, they are being rained on. And so they're very mold resistant. Um, but it's all, but anyways, it's really humid up there. And so drying the plants and extracting hash, you know, through beating, um, which they do some of that in Nepal, like they they definitely do that in Nepal. Um, and I know, uh, bubble hash is kind of creeping its way into, um, you know, uh, the valleys in Milana and, you know, just the other, uh, surrounding, um, uh, Fun fact, if you're ever looking and you ever want to travel to a remote place to get land race, and a lot of people will bring strains to trade, don't bring strains. Bring them 100%. Bubble bags. Oh my God. <laughs> bring them bubble bags. You can bring them Thank to the airport. You won't get confiscated. It doesn't count as drug paraphernalia. You can get it literally anywhere on the planet, and it's worth more than gold to these guys. It's worth more than any seed you could ever give these guys in terms of trade value. It has been I, when I went to Jamaica, when I went to Africa. Every time I go someplace, I always bring like four or five uh, uh, extra uh, sets of bubble bags that I get from Amazon before I go, and, and use them for trade purposes to get access to stuff that I wouldn't normally get access to. That's awesome. And, and you don't, and you don't pollute the local genetics, which, you know, we're not trying to do. Exactly. Exactly. And that's actually sadly, like, because, you know, the Milano Valley is, is so popular um, with tourists from all over the world who want to experience, you know, the culture and go camping up there. And there's, you know, places like Magic Valley where it's really starting to happen. Um, that's why we really went deep on our, on our Magic Valley preservation um, several years back um, because, um, I'm just, I'm an incredible fan of, you know, all the cultivars in the different sub valleys in Milana are just like, they hold a very special place in my heart. Um, we did the Whaling Valley project with the Indian land race exchange a few years ago. Um, you know, and, uh, now there's the Narang Valley. Um, there's the, uh, Kali Ram, uh, hash plant selections that they, that the, uh, Indian land race exchange has been selling, um, which are, um, really 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 unique plants and it's a really good example of farmers who are um intentionally selecting um you know the best hat you know the the best plants from a massive population every year and um yeah uh that's that's um it's a really cool thing that they're doing um and yeah anyone who's who's traveling to these areas it's just um 
leave your seeds at home. There's, you know, bring some seeds home, you know, and, and, uh, but don't, uh, you know, the gene pool, you know, uh, needs to be protected there. It's a very special place with some very, very, very special genetics that are very, very old. And, uh, yeah. That's my rant about that. Uh, we had another question. What's the most psychedelic land race that you guys have worked on to date? Oh, we already mentioned the Malawi. That was, that's definitely, um, the Mitchell Khan is, uh, the the that, that is the penalty and heavy thing of Mitchell Khan. Yeah. I actually, um, I smoked some, uh, with my wife, uh, yesterday evening and, uh, it was from a jar that had been curing for, you know, a little bit, almost six months, I would say in the dark. A dark, cool, uh, little humidor I have, and uh, was just <laughs> not expecting what uh, we <laughs> we split half a joint, you know, just the you know, not a not a huge cone, just like half of a probably half gram joint, and uh, I'm really glad I hadn't I didn't finish it. Honestly, we were both just like, um, it 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 uh, caught us caught us by surprise in a good way but um it's just that 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 quintessential you know old school mexican sativa effect that is um one of the things i just love about those lines it's just that laughing happy vibrant um relaxed you know at the same time like giggly and like everything is silly everything's funny and you're just like um it's a really good headspace and really, really, really long legs on these cultivars too. Like you're going to feel like that for several hours. It's not going to be like an up and down thing. Um, so that's definitely one of the most psychedelic ones that we have worked with today that the Malawi for sure. Um, let's see the Panama, the Panama red, um, is definitely, um, definitely 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 psychedelic um in its own way though in like the like a time warping um spaced out um you know expansive psychedelic space um and like for people looking to pair you know looking for cannabis that pairs well with psychedelics without like you know sending you down the rabbit hole or or um you know ruining your trip um definitely like most Mexican sativas will fit the bill perfectly for that. Um, yeah. in my experience, um, the Michoacan works really well for that. Um, definitely also, uh, I'd say some Thai, there's some Thai varieties and Thai outcrosses that, uh, definitely have a psychedelic, uh, lift to them. I know, um, there's, uh, actually the, uh, chocolate Thai backcross they did with the chocolope. Um, yeah. That one, it's funny because when we're talking about potency, that's uh, that variety tested about, uh, I think it tested 9% THC. It's like 8.9. 8.9. <laughs> and man, like I like, I personally, like I don't smoke a small amount of weed. I have a decent tolerance. And that one, like a couple hits off of a joint. I put it out and I, it felt like something had like, was like moving me through time and space for like hours and hours. And that one, like, <laughs> like, like giggling to myself, like, uh, less, less like, I know with some of the, some of this, uh, Mexican stuff, like the Acapulco gold, sometimes in high amounts, it can get like slight weird visual distortion kind of things. It wasn't like that. 
this is like a very like mentally psychedelic ride that it took me on. And so definitely the, if you're into the trippy weed, I'd say Thai varieties are worth exploring the lowland Thai. Cause that's where the chocolate Thai comes from. The, yeah. Um, I can definitely back that up. The most screwed up I've ever been on a single joint was off of a 16% uh, strain. I don't remember the strain, but it was up from Dragonfly. They'd handed it to me at Emerald Cup and were like, try this. It's, and uh, yeah, <laughs> amazing. Beautiful, beautiful. Oh, Nepalese too. Okay, oh Nepalese stuff. Dude. Out of all the Himalayan stuff, I say Nepalese is oh. probably the most psychedelic, like spiritually psychedelic though. So like you're, you know, um, just like uh like this brilliant like filling your heart chakra with like light kind of psychedelic experience um meditative as hell yeah it's really really a distinct headspace glowing glowing like wrapping yourself up in a blanket but like in a clear beautiful calm kind of way that one also um so i just wanted to quickly welcome west engine thanks for joining us thank you for having me thank you for having me do you want to just do a a quick intro just to introduce yourself before we uh, jump back uh my name is west engine i go a little ganja use a little fish water do a little jadam and knf along the way and uh yeah grow some grow a little bit of dank for myself um and uh, i hang out pretty regularly on a few of the flavors uh chronic table and uh bruise with buds podcast so you can catch me over there with him and doing our thing Humidor, I think, has some stuff going on tonight, but he's also uh, pretty regular on here, too. And uh, we love to hang out on a Fumador show. Uh, we're always uh, having fun conversations over there as well. A little more looser than, than and less formatted than here, but uh, a lot of fun nonetheless. So definitely check that out. We had a lot of good conversations with Coot and, and other fun conversations. Last night, we were having a blast with Coot and uh, running yeah. from Spectrum King and everything else. It was good times. Um, so we had a... a where were we here on the questions? Um, uh, someone else asked, uh, where is it here? Do you feel your work would benefit from land race based strains, uh, having land race based strains protected uh, with some type of creative commons to preserve uh, and protect the freedom of access to these land races, uh, especially in the face of big ags, you know, eventual uh, onslaught? A hundred percent. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think that would be, um, that's something that needs to happen. I think, um, I also think that there, that we as a community, um, need to, uh, focus on establishing places in these countries, um, with this, you know, uh, as part of their, na- uh, national heritage, having these, these, uh, these cultivars, um, grown, you know, in some kind of cannabis preserve where, you know, they're isolated, um, you know, uh, away from any commercial production. They're not in, in, at risk of being, you know, uh, uh, accidentally pollinated by, you know, these commercial farms that are going to be springing up in their area. Um, so these, you know, far removed cannabis preserves in, you know, the country of origin, perhaps, you know, in other parts of the world, which have a similar climate, uh, 
you know, I think that's something that we as a community can do. Um, and uh, also, you know, just working to make sure that these do remain um, available, um, freely available and open source, um, you know, for everyone to play with and, and use. And uh, um, yeah, I think that's a great question. Yeah, we're definitely advocates of uh, keeping things open source in the public domain, especially when it comes to these uh, point of origin varieties. Um, something else that's uh, worth bringing up is that it's uh, definitely uh, every one of us who grows cannabis can do a small part in helping keep these varieties alive and helping keep this diversity in the gene pool out of the hands of big ag by taking the pack of seeds that you bought online and instead of instead of putting it away in your freezer popping those beans making some more beans putting those in your freezer and growing that strain playing around with it getting it actively grown out into the gene pool give away like a third of the beans yeah give away a third. yeah like literally like but like uh, there's no there's no reason to uh to hoard these um these land race varieties they're they're uh they're our building blocks they're our primary colors on our palette and uh this i think also within the um within the uh cultivation community and the community of breeders it's definitely worth uh establishing a standard where um people uh practice uh, people's practices encourage people to grow these seeds like for example not not pricing things prohibitively expensive to the average grower like uh definitely trying to um trying to uh to share genetics instead of trying to keep them all to yourself you know just uh communally spreading these and if, if they're out there then that's how we keep uh, keep big ag and these companies who want to latch on and patent these varieties from getting a hold of them and being able to keep them out of our hands as if we have them and we spread them around in our community because it's strength in numbers i also think too along those lines um making sure that the indigenous communities who are who have been the stewards of these lines for generations um, don't get somehow, um, you know, squeezed out of the, uh, you know, out, out of the loop here, um, as you know, um, you know, people, um, people have been exploiting them for a very long time. And, yeah. um, they're the ones who have been braving, you know, um, risking everything to keep these lines going. And now suddenly, you know, they could possibly be squeezed out and, um, not see, um, you know, uh, uh, they need to be part of the process here. And I think um, one of the things we're currently working on is um, a fair trade uh, system and certification for uh, seeds collected uh, like point of origin genetics um, and ensuring that the farmers who have kept these lines going are getting um, their fair share of the proceeds of anything that's done with that, including um, recreational producers will be able to um participate in this um and they will be um you know donating a percentage of you know every gram sold um to um these farmers so they're seeing benefits of their um of their work their sacrifice very cool also welcome run uh, to the pod thanks for having me on man thank you you're welcome sorry i didn't mean to cut you off
Oh, you're good. No worries. Welcome to the podcast. Good to have you here. Um, one of the, what I was saying pretty much is just that it's also worth remembering, like something that I have for myself is uh, someone who also enjoys your modern polyhybrid varieties, of which there are many of that, like every Northern Lights, OG Kush, Chem Dog, even your cookies, all that, like that's rooted in the work of generations and generations of Afghani Hashishians or uh, sadhus living up in the mountains. Like that's, that's uh, folks who have been selecting this as their life's work and passing it on to their children. And it's not just stuff that was, that we found and then modernized as Westerners. Like this is like, we're a part of a longer history and uh, just one of the threads in the tapestry of creating the beautiful varieties of cannabis and the expansive diversity that we have in our gene pool today. And so as, uh, as modern producers, I think it's, uh, I like to think that we all, we all could, uh, could serve to acknowledge and remember that and perhaps pass on some of the uh some of what we're able to uh, to gain and accomplish from our cannabis work here in the west on the west coast of the united states or wherever you are in a recreational state like being able to pass on any a portion of wealth that's gained from that or some of the benefits on the populations of people who we owe it to Um, did uh, you guys have any questions, uh, Cascadian or Wes? I know you guys have joined us. I saw you guys asked us some great questions in chat. I, I missed the first hour. I got to rewatch it. So I'm a little hesitant to make them backtrack and cover anything that they've already covered. That's all right. Go ahead. I heard, or, you, I heard you guys talking about the psychedelic land races is there anything on the the other end of the scale that you've found or preserved um not necessarily like couch lock or sleepy or pain relief although that's that's interesting too but anything more um other cannabinoids cbd any any hemp any uh any of that sort of preservation going on all right any thcv or cbdv just to add to that um, uh, yes, um, we have been working with some, uh, feral populations just kind of playing around and, um, the, uh, stuff that I've seen, um, the Russian land race bureau doing, um, uh, with some of the, uh, uh, Southern Siberian cultivars, the, um, you know, uh, some pretty interesting cannabinoid profiles coming out of there. Um, and we have some projects in the pipe that we are um, hopefully next season uh, we'll be starting our first um, selections on these um, but it's kind of like a kind of like a semi-auto flower project um, working with some cashmere lines and some of the Siberian lines and uh, uh, trying to make some commercially viable um, CBD dominant uh, hash plants that can grown that can be grown by um, hemp producers um, and also some uh, higher THC um, concentrate plants that can be grown, um, you know, harvested twice a season um, uh, with our cashmere stuff. So, um, so on, the, I, got a, I got a question specifically on the CBD hash. Uh, have you guys found any CBD lines that have large um, trichome heads? Because it seems like to me, at least in my experience, um, the CBD lines tend to have much, much smaller average trichome head sizes. 
Um, and, and I don't know if it's a, a relation to CBD and, and trachome size, but, or if it's just because of the pinholing of the genetics to keep that line preserved, but it seems to, you know, at least typically they seem to be that 70 or 90 micron and under, um, uh, much more than the, the larger trichome head sizes that you see in a THC. And I also know that part of the problem is that it's harvested early to try and prevent it being hot, but, um, have you, have you found any that have kind of larger CBD trichome heads? like above, uh, you know, 70, 90 a micron. Yeah. So our cancer's nightmare, um, has insane, um, just bulbous, um, bulbous trichome heads. Um, very, very, um, I, I don't, I, I couldn't tell you the genetic background. It was given to me by my friend, um, over at Foggy Acres, uh, which is a, a rec farm here in Oregon. Um, he gave me the beans from his hemp operation. And these were this one of the lines that he was at least at the time growing for, um, in his hemp program. And, uh, you know, I think it tested it, you know, it tested under the, whatever the limit is here, um, for that and, uh, makes just some incredibly good, um, dry sift, um, easily separated, um, easily molded. Um, so I would say, I mean, it reminds me of some of the Afghan lines that I've run, um, so uh, they're definitely out there. And especially if you're growing um, larger populations of, you know, um, Middle Eastern hash plants, um, Central Asian hash plants, you will I guarantee you, you will find some extremely interesting cannabinoid profiles in that population. Um, especially if you were to do an open pollination and then grow out, you know, however many you're legally allowed to grow out of that line. <laughs> and, uh, Allegedly. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you will, I guarantee you will find everything from, you know, high CBD um, to high, high THC to one-to-one -to, -one to, you know, and then all kinds of novel cannabinoids in between and terpene profiles. And uh, um, yeah, hash plants are actually a really, really, really good place to look for the long lost, you know, cannabinoid profiles of, of the past because they still exist in those populations. Um, so is Morocco yeah. going to be a, a big uh, creator of, of some of these newer uh, cannabinoid isolates then? Because of the, they have some of the biggest hash producers in terms of pounds per year. I think they're the highest or certainly top three. They're just legalized. Yeah, so Morocco, that's an interesting topic there. Um, Morocco is, there's kind of a battle going on right now um, to... Um, so a lot of the modern hybrids that are, so not a lot of the original land race is still being grown in Morocco by the, uh, hash producers there because the people that are their biggest clients, um, in Europe, they are, you know, they're, they're asking them to plant, you know, higher yielding, um, varieties that are popular with their customers. So people, a lot of amnesia is being so grown. Amnesia it's probably the most popular. And it's being, you know, it's being sold, you know, as Moroccan hash um, in Dutch coffee shops, but it's like amnesia, it's still amnesia haze. And uh, so, I mean, I think there are, there's definitely a movement to try to preserve um, the original land race there um, for reasons other than like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's acclimatized to the area and it's, you know, it's not as high yielding but it finishes, you know, substantially earlier than these commercial varieties. It can be planted very close together where the commercial varieties you're having to 
you know, um, plant them further apart. Um, the, uh, but I think the biggest issue is water consumption. The Moroccan land race can uh, survive. You could dry farm that in the desert. Uh, you know, the, the climate there is, is uh, it's, it's quite warm <laughs> and uh, arid and uh, you can dry farm there. Um, or at least farm with a, with, a, with a very small amount of irrigation. That's really important because there's not a lot of water there. So like, that's one of the issues, like, especially now that they've legalized and there's gonna be a lot of commercial cultivation happening. Um, there's gonna be a lot more water use. And um, I think that's something that is uh, something that people should be factoring in, in these areas when you're, um, you know, starting up a large, uh, commercial production. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of seed companies over there too, who are, um, you know, using the area as like a place to, you know, test some new hybrids and, and whatnot and, uh, do it on a large scale and, you know, make hash from it and selling the hash and all that. But, um, there's also people there who are actively, um, doing the same thing, I think, uh, with the land races. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely not there's not the only place too there's uh definitely other other countries where uh both dutch and american seed companies are going in and having uh, indigenous farmers grow out fields of their genetics and test plots uh, colombia being one I was say, yeah. thailand i recently listened to an interview with a uh a seed producer who i'm not going to name but uh i was telling a story about how they went into thailand and uh had, conversation with some indigenous farmers who uh, had been paid by uh, Dutch seed companies to grow out Dutch genetics. And uh, this American seed breeder's responses was to go and say, oh, well, you should grow out our genetics instead because we have better genetics. And they started importing American varieties over there. And uh, yeah, not only is, as you're saying, not only is that a, a threat to the indigenous populations of cannabis there, but it also just straight up makes no sense when you think about like if you're trying to grow large fields outdoors like it's just traditional in these places you're going to run into all kinds of problems growing our inbred modern polyhybrids it's just as wonderful as some of these strains are as a smoking experience well which is why actually it makes me think you know like morocco is kind of a great place with the climate there to grow pretty much any kind of hybrid you want to it's going to do well there it's arid um it's the mediterranean climate that you know, um, most growers dream of, you can grow any strain you want to there. Um, and that'd be great if there was, you know, an unlimited supply of water and, um, and you weren't doing damage to the indigenous gene pool there. Um, I think, um, it makes very little sense to be trying to grow, like Ryan was saying, you know, uh, modern polyhybrids in a place like Thailand with the high humidity, high heat, it's not adapted. It's like what you were talking about earlier about the South, um, you know, a lot of cookies and GMO and like those are not going to do super well down, you know, growing outdoors um, in the South, in the Southern United States. But there are cultivars, um, excuse me, there are cultivars there um, that you can grow there um, that would, you could grow in a, in, a, in a large field setting that would lead, need little maintenance, little irrigation, and um, would be super cheap and sustainable to grow and produce a, a solid, um, you know, outdoor product, um, especially when compared to, you know, if you try to do the same thing with, uh, you know, a cookies hybrid or I don't know, 
something along those lines. OG Kush. I think other countries, I think Afghanistan, that's why what's happening in Afghanistan right now is, is, is devastating on so many levels. But what I guess, since we're talking about cannabis, I think that's the part like I'd like to touch on really quick is just, you know, you'd mentioned about breeders, you know, finding these novel cannabinoids and these, you know, these profiles and these hash plant populations. I had hopes, very high hopes that Afghanistan was going to be that such, you know, place. And, uh, um, that is, um, it's a reservoir for some of the oldest, um, least polluted gene pools on the planet, um, as far as hash plants go. And, um, you know, there's definitely people out there who, you know, think, you know, um, um, Baba Koo, um, this is, you know, different variations of that this is handle on Instagram. Um, He's a guy um, uh, based out of Northern Afghanistan um, who has been um, bringing um, his brand is Afghan selection. Um, and he has been bringing, I don't know um, if you guys are familiar with that, but uh, he's, he is one of a handful of people um, who have been sourcing and getting um, authentic um, Afghan genetics out of the country um, for the last several years and, um, some really, really, really unique, um, you know, um, very uncommon, um, not really seen in the modern gene pool, um, Afghan cannabis genetics, um, out of, out of there. And, uh, I, you know, um, with the Taliban's policy on cannabis cultivation, um, you know, it's going to be, um, I'd be really surprised if um, that kind of work is going to be able to continue um, for the foreseeable future, at least. So it's important to start if you are a preservationist um, and you have some Afghan beans in your collection, start doing increases right now, like, and give them away, you know, get these beans out there because, um, you know, they're not doing any good sending in your safe, you know, they're not going to appreciate, you know, um, to the point where it's worth, you know, um, just make some more beans, just, just do some, just do some open pollinations and, uh, give your friends some beans and, you know, um, yeah, grow out a room, pollinate that room and then make yourself some traditional, uh, Afghan dry sift and you have a dry sift harvest and a seed harvest from the same room. And you've helped do your part to keep uh, the gene pool a little bit more diverse, especially in the in the face in the face of like this is a, a one of the most ancient and historic cannabis cultures in the world is being interrupted brutally by active persecution by parties who want to literally destroy it and kill the people involved. It's like unprecedented in terms of like one, yeah, human rights first of all, but also second of all in terms of uh, cannabis preservation, it's a, it's a disaster and it's really horrible. It's, it's important that we the, all- uh, say you were saying Filipino line, same thing there with Duterte and-, and his Absolutely. Oh my God, yeah. Someone who wants to kill people who use cannabis actively, like that's you know, anyone who's- Execute them. Yeah, literally. Up, like, you know. Yeah. Um, when we do one of these pollinations, one of these open pollinations where we up our seed numbers and stuff, 
How many uh, females do you think we should have in the room at a time? As many as you can. I mean, as many that fit the bill, you know, anything that's, you know, immediately strikes you as undesirable, um, whether it's lack of vigor or, you know, um, just whatever, you know, if, if they fit the bill even loosely um, for that initial open pollination, um, just leave them in there. And then if you see any intersex traits popping up, just take them out, you know, remove that particular female. Um, Cause chances are you'll find a few and uh, you know, and then the males, as far as males, you know, um, I like to, you know, keep the males that are the very last to show sex. That's one of the things I select for. Um, and that have a lot of vigor, um, the structure um, that I'm looking for. Um, and, you know, if they're putting off some stink and, you know, that's, all, that's the first test. And then you're, and then you're flowering them, you know, um, you generally like uh, plants that are putting off our males that are putting off a lot of resin and um, you know, some good stench. Uh, that's, those are the males I'd keep in. And I usually, you know, if I'm doing like an open pollination, I generally don't like to do less than three males, you know, in a room with ideally, you know, twice as many females. Um, yeah. And just let them do their thing. I don't know if you guys touched on it earlier, but what have you seen for like flavors or aromas that you've come across where you hit the weed and you look at it and you're just like, that doesn't belong in weed. Like whether it's sweet cherries or durian or who tobacco, who knows? Um, is there anything you guys have come across that just, you look at the weed, like there's no way this tastes like that other flavor memory. A lot of the North Indian stuff, um, for sure. Like you're, it's, you know, um, it's so, it's so distinctive and unique because for whatever reason, you know, it's not present in the modern gene pool. People aren't doing a lot of breeding with these. Um, so the North Indian stuff for sure. I mean, like, I don't even know how to describe some of say, when you when you said unique flavors and smells what come what comes to mind is this uh this hybrid that Patrick made from his uh after work affy mom which is uh the Mazari the 1960s Mazari crossed with the uh, Coast Afghani um and then the the dad on that one is the uh Milana yeah, right, the Milana the Milanjik the Magic Valley in northern Indian and then uh and that that cross has this uh you crack open a jar and it fills the room with this smell that almost smells like uh if you were to go to a parking lot of a fish show or an old dead grateful dead kind of concert where it smells like almost like incense and cooking meat and like it smells like an old hippie like an old That's hippie yeah like, like all like, like sweat funk like but not, you know, and not in like the, the way you'd smell, you know, it's like GMO or meat breath or no, uh, no. it's like, a, it's just, it's cause there's something else like to it. Old, and, old patchouli vibes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I have some Pakistani stuff that will literally make you think you try, you track something into your grow room. Dude. I spent a half an hour trying to figure out where the smell is coming from. <laughs> and then I figured out, Oh, it's my plants. Oh my God. And um, that was a line from Yarkoon Valley oh and it just straight up smelled like dog shit. It was, 
<laughs> like, and yeah, I know there are strains, you know, there's a dog shit strain and there's a, um, you know, but I mean, this was straight up like unmistakably, like I, I you know, that's coming off my shoe or my dog got in here and, you know, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a couple smells that I can yeah. definitely off the top of my head. Uh, the Maison Valley smells pretty crazy too. That one's really fun. It's got like, it's got like, like, um, this like musky thing going on, but all like a, like an animal musk combined with like a, almost like a dried cranberry kind of, kind of deep, uh, deep fruitiness with a little bit of a sharp thing of the undercurrents or something like that. And that one's also really cool because it has a very, it has a very dry resin to it. And it's, uh, it's like almost like you grind some up in your hand and you see the, the resin just falling off of the bracts. And it's not sticky at all. It's just it's super unique. Um, I also really love everything that I, I feel like a lot of the stuff from the Nepalese gene pool has this really, uh, like creamy powdered milk almost kind of yeah, smell yeah it's a, a milkiness to it that i really love like almost like sipping a cup of warm milk with honey or something yeah i mean there's like a honey milky incense thing going on with mm -hmm. those yeah and then the then the other really unique smell that i that i've fallen so in love with is the selenidine dominant you know of uh, michoacan and that one, it's, I feel like it smells like, uh, like the word that I like to use to describe it as petrichor. Like it's the term for like, uh, when you walk in the forest after it rains, like a pine forest, like up here in Oregon, if it's raining in the spring and that's like the rich microbial humic smells from the earth combined with the, uh, with the very uh, classic pine and almost like a cedar wood thing in the back, like oak moss vibes. And it's very, it's very peaceful smell. I love just like I'll smell that one just to get get it all in my nose, and it's like almost smelling a a pine essential oil or something like that. It's so clarifying and calming. You mentioned that uh, that you came across that particular set of cultivars where the the heads were really dry. Have you noticed regional correlations between drier or greasier or um like expressions oh for sure yeah definitely um i would say the himalayan stuff is definitely gonna have a much more greasy um tacky greasy resin to it um really 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 easy to just um rub, <laughs> rub off onto your hand right. i mean that's because that's what they've been selected for and so like it's just uh with a little bit of sun on them it's just it becomes just kind of like a slick, a slick, sticky paste that you just, you know, um, whereas like Afghan stuff, um, you know, Northern Afghan stuff, it's going to be, um, you'll have like greasy resin, but it's also incredibly sticky. Um, just a, a kind of like a denser, thicker consistency. Um, and then I feel like a lot of the Southern Afghan stuff, um, the Lebanese stuff that I've grown, um, Mediterranean stuff in general tends to have a much, uh, much drier um character to the resin and uh that you know it's that's you know uh it's a pretty true statement to to make i think throughout those entire uh those entire regions for those for the resin uh 
that they're making. It's just, it's yeah. a, yeah. A lot of this is a, it's a combination of the environmental factors that have influenced the strains, like successful development in that region. Like how does the, what kind of resin does the flower need to produce to protect the plant itself against mold and mildew and to repel pests to attract pollinators who are going to aid in addition to that wind pollination. And then a combination of that and also what are the indigenous population in those regions selecting for? Are they making, are they growing for ganja? Are they making hash? Are they doing dry sift? Or are they rubbing charas, you know? Yeah, it's interesting how you get that essentially a downstream effect because the, the plants that are selected are selected for the environment and then the product is selected based on the environment and the phenotype. So they all, it's interesting how they all correlate. I just wondered if your guys' experiences uh, corroborated the body of evidence. That's, that's pretty cool. So what's been the hardest thing for you guys to lay your hands on? Uh, what like, and uh, is, there, is there an active unicorn that you're out searching for right now? Man, that's a good question. Ooh. I mean, you know, Brazilian stuff, I feel like there's not, you know, aside from the stuff that, you know, we have in our collection from, you know, the 70s and 80s from Brazil, like I haven't seen, you know, um, we've been talking actually, um, a friend of mine down there who we might be carrying some of his selections on the new site. So um, that's one. Um, God, let's see. You know, some of the older Mexican lines, you know, um, the, uh, you know, Central Highlands of Mexico, the Zacatecas lines, um, there are, um, we have a few, um, well, more than a few, we got, I have um, these, these be the beans for the Zacatecas, which are not getting broken out until like, I'm just good and ready to, to do the repopulation, but um, because I can't, I, I don't have a source to, um replace them if something goes awry and it just uh they're fairly old beans so you know we might be tissue culturing those just to make sure we get because that's one of those lines that i i don't i don't know if i buy that it's that it's extinct i know other people have consider it to be extinct and i just don't know if i you know if i buy that but that's that's definitely unicorn i think a lot of uh preservationists are are um you know, really, really like to get their hands on. Um, I mean, there's the Filipino stuff. I'd love to see more Indonesian stuff. Um, that's one that I'd really like to see. Um, more, more of the Southern African stuff, Malaysian stuff. Um, yeah, and some of the some of the more unique Southern African stuff. I mean, there's outfits out there doing this, but um, you know the uh, Rui beard and the or the Rui bard and the the uh, the Transky Red. That hits me that you guys have that many things that you guys are, are actively <laughs> looking for and into. That, that's awesome. Good for you. Yeah, there's, 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 there's always more. There's, uh, people have been growing this plant for so many years and so many places. It's a lot of exploring left to do. Have you had any luck with the Northern Africans? The Congos and the Ethiopians and the Ooh. there's probably some Kenyan. I'm not sure. 
Um, yeah, actually, I've got I have some Kenyan beans that I am trying to work into the rotation here pretty soon just to do a repopulation. Um, these are gifted to me um, from a kind of Instagram friend. And uh, we are going to do some uh, definitely do a repopulation and then kind of go through and try to comb through that line and, and get it out there. Um, the uh, Congolese stuff is like, those are one of my, that's like one of my favorite places to uh, work with genetics from uh, just because it's one of those, those lines, the, uh, or one of those places where um, Malawi too, I guess, cause, cause the, uh, the central African uh, climate, um, especially the Highland varieties, um, they take very well to the, um, the Pacific Northwest. They're very mold resistant, um, incredibly potent, plants, um, easy to find, really good keepers. Um, intersex rates are fairly low. Um, so yeah, the, um, yeah, it's Congolese. I love Congolese. Um, I'd love to start working with some Angol Angolese and <laughs> uh, some stuff from Angola. Yeah, some stuff from Angola. Um, I know there's, I, I have a couple friends who are working on some, some of that in, um, like some Angola red up in Portugal, working on acclimatizing that. So I'm, I'm hoping to get some beans from that project pretty soon and, and get those, those going. But um, there's just I'm so curious, many. I'm curious. One thing says you're, uh, I've had a chance to spend time in South Africa and in Zimbabwe. I'll be headed back to some of South Africa this winter at some point. I don't know the exact date yet, but um, if you look at the total consumption worldwide, number three or four is Nigeria. And you never hear anybody in the West talk about Nigerian genetics. Is that anything that you've ever thought about or anything in that, in that particular part of Africa? It just, it always kind of puzzled me um, knowing that, you know, if you talk about pounds consumed per year, that they're in the top five and then we just never talk about their <laughs> yeah. genetics. It just seems like this weird kind of black hole. It is it for sure. And like, that's actually, um, there are some Nigerian lions floating around out there. Um, Snow High works with one. Snow High. Um, I know Reefer Mansion and back in the day had their oh. Nigerian nightmare. Uh, let's see. I mean, so you know, Nigerian silver is an old clone that's been passed around here in the Pacific Northwest for a while. I actually have a clone of a Snow High Nigerian bouncing around in my veg tent. Oh, right hey. on. Hey. I don't have a male. I got it from a friend, so I don't have any way to keep it pure, but I've got a Nigerian awesome. lady I'm going to do some work with. You can make some feminized so beans. That's what silver thigh sulfate is for, I guess. Yeah, you could self it, make some feminized beans and, you know, see how stable they are. Maybe. The other one I'm, I'm interested to get into, like you mentioned, I have a pack of that Angola Red from Snow High as well I need to get into. So I oh, thought I about thought about using the angola red on the nigerian as sort of a back cross project as opposed to a, a feminized line um, that's the, yeah that would yeah, be, that'd be great that would be solid. so yeah i'm excited to get into some of that that's why i was asking about the the north african stuff or the central african stuff oh, you hear a lot about malawi and transki and durban and rui bard and but you don't ever i don't ever hear as much about the northern or the central stuff so i was curious I'm really excited. One of one of the packs that I'm most excited to dig into. Uh, I think this winter we're gonna get into it when the we got everything more on lock here. Um, and some of the guts. Once we sift through some of the Mexican stuff, I'm gonna pop some of the seeds from uh, Sudan. I've um, got some uh, 
a pack donated by our um, friend over at uh, Z Strains. He yeah, did an increase on some Sudanese beans, and we're gonna in turn do another increase on them. And that's I've never grown anything from that region before. So I'm really intrigued to see what pops out. I know that we're, uh, you're also doing some, uh, some Sinai currently. So that's yeah, uh, yeah, from so that sort of area. Yeah. But I'm, I'm stoked to see what happens with the Sudanese. Yeah, I've seen those Iranians come out a couple of years ago, the Iranian preservations. I didn't, do I didn't have the opportunity to get any of myself, but they looked a lot like the Sinai did. Yeah, that's uh, actually it's fun you bring that up. Right now, I'm uh, doing an increase on some uh, some Iranian in, uh, in the basement. It's the the real seed company session from a uh, twenty. I think 2019 was when it was collected over in Iran, and it's it's really fun because out of the I got a six going right now, and out of them there's a a decent variety. There's uh, some that are a little more broadleaf, and they're a little more narrow leaf, and then. I can uh, already see it looks like you can see that out now in the hash field, you know, that, that a little bit more variety than something that's being selected for, say, ganja cultivation someplace else. I think the Iranian stuff is really cool. Dude, I'm really excited to see those get bigger. It's, it's going to be a fun one. I guess there was a little bit more variation in the pictures on the uh, Iranian, but I do remember seeing, I remember, I have the memory of it, the Moroccan looking like the Sinai, looking like the Iranian all kind of relative to each other but i I do remember now that you bring it up there was some other kind of phenotypes showing in the the iranian i feel like there's a common thread with most of the mediterranean stuff um like the turkish i've seen and the the lebanese and the syrian and and uh but they're they're all slightly different but they all there's definitely like a common thread like they all have very similar um you know yeah and the stature of the plants and and uh almost the and like the the characteristic of the high is kind of you know is there's definitely similarities um see i'm really excited about the sinai uh project we're working on right now yeah and uh uh, the lebanese too well we're doing lebanese one right now too yeah that's the start of the uh the uh, mediterranean hash plant project that's the the kalamata red oh my god the kalamata red we got a couple of those beans going that's that one's uh really unique that's um a land race or i guess an heirloom from uh from greece held by a collector there delic organic is his uh is his handle on instagram that he's uh his family has been uh, holding on to that one for decades and decades. And uh, we popped some seeds of those and they're coming up. And yeah, they're only a couple of weeks old now, but I'm really excited to see what secrets they have to hold. And my wife is Greek too. So these come from a village, like not too far from like where, where her, her family is from. And so like, she's really excited about this project. That's cool. I've heard a lot about the Kalamata Red, but I've never seen any, any good flower pictures. Um, not that the plants looked bad, but the pictures were of poor quality. <laughs> hey, well, you know what? Give us uh, give us a couple months, and we'll, we'll have some for you. <laughs> That's exciting, man. The goal, yeah. Ryan's gonna be doing a lot of posting on the blog uh, for the website, so he's gonna be doing some pretty detailed uh, documentation of the projects that we're doing, and strain descriptions, and smoke reports, and just all that stuff. So, uh, pictures and whatnot. So he's gonna be. You'll see some interesting. Uh, interesting stuff about these lines coming out in the next six months over the next six months 
Awesome. So is there anything, um, is there any oddball crosses that you guys have done? You guys do a lot of, or do you guys strictly do uh, preservation? Have you crossed any different land races to get something pretty cool? Or is there anything that you think might be really cool if it was crossed, if you haven't tried to cross it yet? Yeah, actually. So like, uh, I don't know which one. So I've got it. Yeah. So I have, I started a Northern Lights project um, like two years ago and we, I did the final uh, selections and, and pollinations of these um, uh, last fall. So Basically, I took the Northern, uh, our Northern Lights number five. It's a Dutch uh, selection from 1992, I believe, and uh, 91 or 92. Uh, so that's really important. Which, <laughs> um, but yeah, I took that and then I crossed it with um, uh, our Moshi clone. So uh, I had this had this Moshi clone that was just. Um, just like a really awesome smoke i'm not a gelato fan but this is just like there is it was a it was she was special but um and i kept her around for just like it's just like a really psychedelic um happy giggly cut of that line I was, what is it the gelato for, 45 or 49 it's 45 i think 45 that makes sense though and so she she brighter than other gelatos. Yeah, she's just yeah, she was worth keeping. But like she was just not, um, you know, super super dwarf, slow veg, um, not really fun to keep around for those reasons. And she had a slight susceptibility to PM. And uh, so yeah, so I crossed her with the NL five um, line that we were working and. Uh, um, I am so far just blown away with the results and I am really, really stoked. The seeds are going to be, um, on the site, uh, for people to try, um, and like sometime this week, I believe. Um, and so we have that and we had like our, uh, our wedding cake, uh, wedding cake, Northern lights, number five. Um, and the, uh, the one I am probably the most stoked about is our leftover crack, um, which is Northern Lights number five crossed with our green crack cut from the uh, up here in Oregon. It's the old medical cut green crack. And uh, these are these are just some amazing plants and I am blown away the Northern Lights. So the reason I chose Northern Lights for this project is like this line is just old school Dutch, just bulletproof like before the breeding got really funky and you know really had to move indoors this is like definitely outdoor selected greenhouse selected dutch northern lights um and um we're just um the super super mold resistant super pm resistant um really drought resistant hardy plants but just like with a really they passed the dad passed on his his vigor and his his branchiness and his like open structure and so with these plants like the it's basically just these these giant um you know uh giant uh hardy frames pr producing like huge um you know frosty nugs on um you know which smell like uh what would you say the stem rub is on those in there right now Oof. i don't know it's kind of like it has a little bit of the uh, almost like pine turpentine or white spot going on, but it's a little, a little bit more funk. 
Um, so I, I really love the, uh, the the leftover crack, that green crack, Northern Lights cross. There's some some of the males in there that we've been stress testing, like uh, definitely actually almost accidentally missed a watering last week because I thought they had just been watered. They were so upright, but they were like the soil was completely bone dry. But they weren't even phased. They weren't even phased. They were chilling. Then I've got some other crazy. Uh, so I have this line called Old Faithful. So Old Faithful is the uh, Highland tie crossed with our uh, Brazilian Mango Rosa um, crossed with our Cashmere Cernu. And so she's like, she's just an incredible, incredible line that I just am a huge fan of. Just this, the, she's one of my favorite plants to grow. She's one of my favorite plants to smoke. Um, but well, I, I'll probably put some beans up of her, of the pure old faithful here too, um, at some point in the next month or two. But um, I took her and I crossed her with the Mitrocon and um, <laughs> and a couple oh the Crystallica, the Crystallica from Mandala Seeds, and um, the <laughs> the terpene profiles that are, that are uh, on their way are um, uh, I don't even know unique yeah just incredibly unique like this like um luminescent funk you know like this i don't even know how to describe it just just um really exciting plants are just like incredibly vigorous the most vigorous thing in the garden right now by far um and the um the cashmere being super frosty and the mitchell Khan being uh the pheno that we used um, is uh, incredibly, incredibly like frosty and, and long spear colas. So um, they're like, they were just the perfect pairing. And uh, that's, I have a few more of the old faithful crosses that I still have to test out. I actually have the Northern Lights. Um, I didn't mention Northern Lights, uh, White Widow either. So our old White Widow line, I cross up with the Northern Lights number five as well. And that's, that's another one that uh, I'm really, really, really excited about. Um, so just trying to like, like kind of like reinfuse a little bit of, um, you know, um, the older, you know, less hybridized old school Dutch stuff from the super sativa seed club days, um, which we actually have some super sativa, super sativa seed club Durban poison going right now that we're just started. Courtesy um, of AK bean brains. And the Beatrix choice as well. Yeah. That's that. Uh, Be Beatrix Choice was actually uh, that one was um, so one of the old, old Super Sativa C Club hybrid that was um, found by a gentleman on uh, who goes by the name of uh, Bluegrass Skunk Lord on the internet, and uh, he uh, was in, in touch with uh, an old timer from down in Kentucky where he lives. He got the beans, open pollinated them with AK Bean Brains, and they released them for the commercial market, and we're. Uh, doing some preservation work on that one right now. Uh, maybe even play around with it a little bit once we got the Acapulco gold flowering, maybe do a, an Acapulco gold back cross using the Beatrix choice because the Acapulco is one of the components in the Beatrix choice. Um, another one that's I think worth mentioning is the, uh, the Cash Blues. Oh yeah, that's the Cash Blues. Collaboration with Dr. Green Sky. Yeah, so it's a Red, Red Scare Seed Company collaboration and Dr. Green Sky uh made this amazing cross with his Whitaker blues um and a uh cashmere dad 
from us. And uh, it's, I mean, it's just amazing, solid um, breeding work on his part. That's the one I've seen the most variegation on too, because the old blueberry um, genetics in there and uh, those things just reek just like right out of the gate Um, before. Yeah. Just like, classic um stink your bedroom ups um old school like blueberry that like dense um i don't even know how to like just (laughs) just yeah that old school blueberry smell like coupled with this limonene uh, undertone from the cashmere and it's just like yeah and the smoke is just absolutely like pure medicine just like it's um for for whatever just like turn your frown upside down don't have anything important to do kind of weed <laughs> it's a smoke i give to i have some friends who have uh, a lot of like serious social anxiety and also don't really respond that well to cannabis and that's one that i can give them and they can smoke in a circle and won't, won't freak them out or anything but it's also something that i can find deeply medicinal at the end of a long day of work in the garden it's also one that if i if i was like a cannabis sommelier and at a fancy restaurant, I would totally pair it with like a, a, a lemon blueberry pastry bar kind of thing. It's definitely got that sweetness and almost like milky baked good underneath with the lemon blueberry on top. So that's another one we're doing uh, an increase on and that'll be those will be available probably in the next four to six months. So that sounds like it'd go really good with the the milk, honey, caramel one you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Oh, dude. <laughs> that would be a great cross. Oh, dude. And so I guess like the one that I'm probably, like one of my favorite creations of the last few years, um, it's my wife's favorite by far. Um, it's our magic medicine. So it's a magic valley male, which we I called his majesty. He was... <laughs> just so like regal and you know we did all these open pollinations outdoors in our little mountaintop uh, farm in Newburgh um, back in like 2015 and uh, he um, he was just an outstanding uh, breeding male he's the one that was he's the father of uh, the guru um, which is one Ryan was just uh, singing his praises of. but the Magic Valley uh, male we pollinated um, for all four of our uh, Panama Red moms. And uh, it just created um, the, the, it's just, it's the kind of thing that you could, it's, it's just the best daytime medicine I have come across for um, like for serious uh, medical conditions um, or female issues. Um, I think we've had so much good uh, positive feedback from uh, women who have um, you know, use it for menstrual pain, um, or for morning sickness or for, um, you know, um, whatever really is going on, um, magic medicine, it just has this power to just like, especially upper digestive stuff. Um, and it's, and it's a pure sativa, it's Panama red across the magic Valley Milana. Um, but the flowering time well it's like it's like 12 weeks flowering time so it's like reasonable for a pure sativa and it's got just this hybrid vigor um and uh yeah just oh and <laughs> i think one of the best parts is the um just it's it's bulletproof like it doesn't matter what's going on in your grow room it's just chilling it's just going to be there doing its thing um 
like, you know, we were dealing with a thrip infestation uh, last year. Um, you know, we had thrips from some bad clones we brought in. Um, everything else, I had to fight them off. The magic medicine was just like, okay, keep doing your thing. You know, I'm just going to be sitting here and I'm totally fine. You know, and then the PM came in, of course, when the thrips came in. And so I was battling that same thing. Magic medicine was just sitting there doing its thing. Um, truly like a special plant. It's, yeah. My next seed run is going to be open pollinating some 1994 Colombian um, brick bag seeds. Nice. Oh, dude, that's wonderful. I'm going to sneak that Nigerian I was telling you about from Snow High in there. Oh, and I'm yeah. going to sneak oh, uh, the Vietnamese black from Snow High. I got one lady yes. like that. So. This is what we love to hear. Nice. I'm excited to do those combinations and then have the, the open pollinated Colombian as well. Oh, my God. That's going that's, to that's gonna be a fun Very project. Like we're really, talking yeah. about unicorns. That's yeah, that's what I'm seeing stock of right now. It's Colombian. I'm really excited uh, for the Nigerian Colombian cross. That's gonna that's gonna light some heads on fire. I think. <laughs> oh, for sure. That's really fun. Man. That's probably gonna shorten the flowering time of that Colombian lot too. Yeah, I haven't got to run the Nigerian yet. Um, the first time I run it will be that that seed run. So. It'll be oh, nice. Yeah, she's a keeper from a friend's friend, so she's got to be good. I just haven't I haven't given her a run yet. And then uh, the other general kind of cross I'm excited about is to take some some Himalayan lines. I've got two Nepalese lines and two Manipuri lines. The Manipuris are the ones I'm really excited about. But yeah. to take those and pollinate them with some Afghani or Pakistani lines, um, the structure and the flower set and the flavor aroma overlap between those two regions. And being in the Northwest, I'm, I'm up in the Puget Sound. Uh, oh, right. So I got to breed for a little bit more wetter, powdery, mildew resistant, mold resistant, botrytis resistant. So I'm hoping to capture some of that from the Himalayan and keep some of the structure from the Afghani Pakistani so that they're a little more upright because those Himalayans tend to sprawl uh, and just see what the flavor yeah. and aroma brings. I'm, I'm That's probably the bread and butter of my, my land race hybrids work is probably going to be in that ballpark. The, uh, the Africans and the Colombians and everybody else is just kind of for fun, but that's the part I think that's going to make some regionally adapted cultivars for the Northwest. I'm pretty excited about those. I'm excited to see what comes out of that. That all sounds like really fun from work. Yeah, I think you'll have some really interesting expressions too. Those, uh, like, you know, are pretty, uh, uh, pretty uh opposite uh spectrums there too the afghan and the manipuri so i feel like that's going to produce some really really robust vigorous uh resistant plants that are going to be really fun to grow yeah it's gonna it's gonna come down to a lot to selection i think in the f2 f3 f4s just to see if it if i can push it the right way or for if it sure turns into a giant mess 
you're gonna have some crazy f2s i yeah that's gonna be a really fun uh selection yeah those manapuris are something special man yeah they are they don't always look the greatest but you can tell the genetics are there and they just need to be worked a little bit uh, for that, sure that region's so um impoverished the people there don't have a lot of money they don't have a lot of uh, it's not that they're it's not that they're uneducated but they don't have a lot of western breeding selection education they just kind of are trying to make ends meet all the time and it reflects itself in the genetics i guess is what i'm getting to that um there they've kept to their benefit they've kept a really diverse gene pool because they've always had to just make do with what's worked and they haven't been able to cherry pick very much where you can tell some of the like afghani and pakistani lines they've had more more time to cherry pick so some of their genetics are a little bit more photogenic i guess um some of the like the I picked up the Balochistans that were offered. I think it was, it was either 2019 or 2020. Uh, the 2019 selections. They're very photogenic. They're very baseball bat cola type, eight nine foot tall plants that they've had a lot of work, a lot of selection done on them, and you just don't see that out of the the Manipuri region. They're they're all over the place. Um, so that's that's kind of exciting just to know that they're very diverse, but also from making a hybrid standpoint, kind of worrisome because you you don't really know what's buried underneath the phenotype you're looking at. Absolutely, for sure. I feel like that's a lot of that. What you're talking about is is a product of the you know the war on drugs and you know having the you know the clandestine nature of you know cultivation. Um, in most of these regions we're talking about, um, you know, where people have had to do this stuff, um, you know, and, and haven't, you know, um, been able to take the time and, and, and effort to, to really, you know, if you, if you look at like, you know, for instance, like tie sticks from like back in the, you know, early to mid 1960s was just, I mean, they were, there's a reason people, you know, talk about tie sticks the way they do. Um, it was an, it was, uh, it was an artisan product. People were, you know, um, they put so much time into growing these crops. It was all small batch at the time. Um, and so it was just like the creme de la creme coming out of there. And then, you know, the demand, Western demand spiked, um, uh, in the late sixties and seventies. And uh, the crafts suffered because, you know, Western groups, um, smuggling groups went in and started planting these massive fields and trying to, um, the selection was just basically gone. They weren't doing selections anymore, just growing massive fields uh, and making, you know, um, you know, the quality of the tie stick, you know, started plummeting, you know, around that time. And, and uh, that's, that's why. Um, and so I think, um, I think with legalization and, you know, you know, these, you know, with indigenous farmers being given the ability to really 
get back to, you know, what they were, um, you know, doing things with that special care and getting, getting paid. So that's the other thing, cause they're not getting paid. Um, they're getting paid a fraction of what that stuff is sold for on the streets in India. So, I mean, um, cause most of that stuff for Manipur stays in country. It's just sold. There's like two different grades and it's sold. Um, it's fairly cheap. It's like working man's weed. And so, right. um, that's, I think, um, you know, getting, having like a fair trade structure and having that, you know, I would love to see at some point in the next 10 years, um, when export import export becomes more viable. Um, I think, um, legal import export, I should say, to clarify. <laughs> um, I, I think it'd be awesome to see like those products available on the shelves of Western dispensaries. I think, you know, um, just like you can buy, you know, just like you get tea from, from different regions in India and China, and, you know, it's um, having that regional brand or whatever, like um, it's going to give farmers incentive to really hone their craft and get back to what they were, you know, their traditional methods and producing an authentic, um, product that's you know ref reflects the culture and the uniqueness of that region because that's you know and i really think that's going to lift up these communities a lot um and kind of give them they all have something very special um and uh well, they do have something very special but like have you know what i'm trying to say yeah. anyways and I think uh, I think that as much as I don't like to compare cannabis to alcohol in general, I think the comparison is apt when we're thinking about like regional varietals. If we think about it in terms of wine, there are some of these regions that have very distinct cultivars and the widely known names. And if there's uh, if we can develop a system worldwide where yeah we're establishing fair trade and then we're also talking about these varieties in terms of their terroir and their appellation like where are they where are they from what's their provenance and like uh then possibly then you could uh just like you can only have champagne from champagne in france like you could only have uh authentic thai stick from thailand or you could have your colombian gold grown in colombia and have the that that but if we're talking about economic kickbacks to those regions, like that's going to do far more than putting a percentage of sales within a Western country ever could. Like actually, uh, that'll that'll give those give an influx of capital into those regions, and that'll definitely go a long ways in terms of helping just development and helping people's lives in general. There was a question in chat a little bit ago about uh, intersex traits. Have you guys came across anything that obviously you've had to preserve out of necessity, but it's too intersex dominant to release? Um, yeah, actually, I think I talked about this the last time I was on here. Um, a lot of our Thai stuff and our Vietnamese stuff, I have held back releasing in pure form just because of the, the high occurrence of intersex traits that like, you really can't grow a pack out. Like, you know, I'd grow out, you know, 24 beans, like I'd be given out and uh, you know, a third of them are going to sprout even like it's, it's minor at this point with the selection that we've done. But I mean, it's, it's enough to where like, it's going to be really frustrating for someone who's, who might not be expecting that. And it doesn't I feel like it doesn't matter how much you tell someone that that's going to happen. You're going to have to work really hard to select against that. Cause like they're very, 
they're, they're difficult lines to tame for indoors. It's been done, you know, but it's, um, uh, for, for, if you're growing for your own head stash, um, and you have like a separate tent or something that's dedicated to that particular line and you don't mind picking out a few seeds, um, then like that's, it's perfect for that. But like, um, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily, um, expect the, the issues they're going to run into and, you know, the, the intersect stuff, especially, and, you know, they have like four other strains going in a tent or their room and they're, you know, they get pissed because they pollinated their entire space. Um, after, you know, the plant's going to look fine for three months and you have like your second round going in of your cookies or, um, your Afghans. And then suddenly, you know, I'm thinking of like literally an actual incidence <laughs> that happened a few years ago and um, an entire arm of this plant after three months, just flowering perfectly female. I don't know what I did. I looked at her wrong or something and she decided to turn one of her arms into, you know, male organs and pollinated within like the span. I think I, I, I was gone for two days and I came back and if I'd been there the day before, I wouldn't have missed it, but you know, I was gone for two days and she had pollinated everybody. And so, um, I still have a lot of beans from those accidental pollinations that if I wanted to dig through, I'm sure I could find some interesting bag seed from those, but, um, yeah, mainly the Southeast Asian stuff. Well, yeah. And the, and the Filipino one I was talking about earlier, um, those, um, ones, the beans that my father had from those were very difficult to get to the point where I'd be comfortable releasing them. And so that's why I'm really excited about like Khalifa Genetics upcoming Filipino release because they are very good at removing um, intersex traits and before they release the line. And so that's what I'm definitely gonna be swooping up and doing some work with because um, I love Filipino, uh, that high from the Filipino weed. It's just uh, something, something different. There was another question earlier from chat about male selection uh why what's your theory on keeping the males that are the latest flowering as opposed to the middle or early flowering males so basically like anything that is gonna like we before i use a male like just stress test the shit out of it i just make sure that it's you know um no matter what i throw at it it's not gonna start flowering early it's not going to flower if i leave it in a four inch pot for three months it's not going to flower if i you know don't water it for three days and almost kill it and then bring it back you know it's not going to do that if i you know or you know flower it for you know three weeks and bring it back into the bedroom and whatever like we throw everything at it and uh anything that's going to auto flower you know anything that's gonna um you know, start stress flowering, like we, you know, are heavily pre-flowering uh, males, I tend to stay away from. Um, so I personally like to select for ones that are, I like to have, so I like to have an intermediate range. So one that's gonna be fast to initiate once the photo period's been changed. And then I like to have, you know, so within like, you know, a week or two, you really start to see some, some uh, you know, signs of flowering. And I also like to have ones that, um, are you know gonna take two weeks three weeks before they're showing um depends on the line obviously but that would be that's kind of like my method when i'm selecting males so anything that's that's um 
that's going to just start flowering the second you look at it wrong. Um, it doesn't make it into our program. I think it's really important because I think that's one of the things that people don't really um, uh, think about when they're selecting males a lot of times. And it's, it's uh, because it, because they are, you know, um, you're going to have some that are going to start just fully flowering, um, you know, uh, before you even sex your females um, and just sitting there in veg and they start dropping pollen. And so we definitely don't want to have that um, trait being passed on, but I also like to keep, a, you know, the faster ones to initiate, um, uh, especially if we're like trying to do, we have plans to do some outdoor um, acclimatization stuff with that line at some point, you know, I like to have stuff that's that I'm going to have like earlier, earlier flowering stuff that can finish, you know, before the end of September, ideally, um, or like by mid-October, um, but without having that semi-auto flowering trait that you'll find with lines like that when you grow them indoors, things that are hard to keep as moms. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my method for male selection. It's always interesting to hear people's male criteria because for a long time back in the like forum era male selection was almost a, a taboo topic um everybody would talk all day about their females but they wouldn't tell you how they were selecting their males or their criteria or how many they used or for sure i'm glad to see it being a more approachable topic these days because it's important man oh yeah it's super important I was just going to ask you what, what you like in male traits and <laughs> you kind of have more, mostly answered it. Uh... I mean, yeah, I'm sure I could keep going if you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please do. Um, yeah. I mean, smell is, is, is a big one. Uh, resin um, floral, you know, um, flower structure. You know, it's a big one that I don't think, you know, people necessarily think about is, you know, um, you can tell kind of what, you know, the male is going to pass on its, its structure, you know, that's the, that's one of the biggest things that you're going to inherit generally from a male. Um, and so that definitely, like, if I like the way the plant grows, if I like the way it looks as far as, you know, it's, you know, I look for robust, um, uh, branchy. I don't like, I like plants that I can clone without having to top first. You know, I like, I like there be enough branches, you know, after, you know, six weeks of veg to take, you know, at least, you know, four to six clones off the lowers of each plant, you know, if I'm doing selections. And, um, so that's something to look for. Um, you know, uh, and also, I mean, a lot of people, this is something that, you know, most, a lot of breeders know this. I don't know if a lot of like people that are getting into breeding, home breeding and whatnot. Um, there's not a lot out there about this, but intersex traits in males. People are always looking for the intersex traits in their female populations. But I think it's, it's just hugely overlooked that males can actually also be intersex. And you have to really keep a close eye on this, especially when you're working with uh, land race stuff, you're really gonna um, keep an eye out because you'll have, oh, those are some beautiful male clusters. And then you see that there's also a few pistols coming out of there. Well, that's a big deal because that's gonna pass on, you know, to your population, you're passing on the intersex trait just like you would if you were, you know, uh, growing with a, you know, intersex female. Um, that's why um, it's always, sorry to cut in, but that's why it's always important to run the male to the end. A lot of people will 
will do a pollination round and they'll be like, they'll look at the females and they'll say, okay, I've got the seed set that I was looking for. And then they'll whack the male and you don't ever see that really the true end of life phase of the male. And sometimes Absolutely. that's where you'll find them, them throwing those pistols. Um, if you don't run the male to the end, you don't really ever know for certain that it was a male through and through. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I guess that's one other thing I should touch on too, is like when we're doing a pollination, um, those males, they die in their pots. Like they're, like they don't uh they never get pulled from the room until the females are harvested and uh you know the males have generally like exhausted all of their life force at that point and they're just they're you know and so i think if yeah if you you it's imperative to leave the males in there until you know like let them dry out stop watering them if you want to they'll stay alive and, and you'll be able to see pretty quickly if you know uh in, in drought like conditions too, they'll, uh, if they're going to throw pistols, they'll definitely do it then. And, uh, yeah, that's just, uh, it's a good thing to look out for. Do you do any, uh, correlating between the male and female traits? One of the things I've, I'm trying, I'm trying to see if it works or not. I haven't done enough yet, but, um, trying to correlate stem rubs. So when I find a that I like, I try to find the female that has a similar stem rub and use her kind of as a gauge for what that boy would look like if that boy was a girl. Um, have you guys tried any of that? Do you have any experience with with correlating? I mean, obviously structure and, and everything else, but one of my last selection pieces is to see if the stem rubs match up and try to correlate those. Yeah, no, definitely. That's, that's something that um, like, if you're, if you're selecting for a certain, you know, terpene profile, um, that's definitely a solid technique, um, at least to give you like a ballpark idea, you know, of what's what. And I mean, like, if you're doing a back cross or an F2, perhaps you might have a better idea that if you've smoked the flower grown out, you know, the previous generation, you have like, you have an idea of what the flower which profiles are going after so that's that's definitely a a good way to kind of pick your you know the studs for your your projects and i mean usually like unless you have just like an extraordinary pack of seeds you know the standout males are definitely going to be visible i you know pretty pretty quickly and so you'll have you know a small handful to select from and so like um I think that's, you know, using those criteria, it's pretty easy to like narrow it down to the ones that uh, are going to make it through. I think I've about bled all the questions dry out of the chat. Just taking one more look here. Sorry about that. Uh, dealing with some issues with all the all the dogs in the house now <laughs> that we have four instead of two and making sure everyone so yeah, I apologize. Um, uh, yeah, um, is there any other, um, I mean, this is some of the best and uh, interesting uh, traits I've ever heard of as far as how to pick males. Um, is there anything, especially uh, maybe early indicators or what indicators do you use to say like it's definitely a no? Like you just went over a bunch of things that you really like. 
what is what is ones that are like huge red flags like this isn't going to pan out and it's not worth me wasting the further cultivation on it um aside from aside from intersex traits yeah um anything that's just like a runt lacking vigor some auto flowering stuff or just straight up auto flowering yeah straight auto flowering yeah because like uh, males just are definitely in a hurry to to you know do their thing um i think that holds true for a lot of humans and plants and uh there's (laughs) there are males that definitely like you know um we'll just straight up start flowering and veg like full-on flowering not just uh you know, I just pulled um, a couple leftover crack um, males out of the bedroom because they were uh, doing just that. And it was, it was mainly, it was like heavy pre-flowering, but it's just enough where I'm like, nope, sorry, you're not going to make it. You're in a three gallon pot and you're doing that. And then you're how, you know, two months old. So were that's, they, that's a big one. Were they root bound? No, no, they weren't root bound. They were just, uh, oh, wow. You know, just the left or the, the green, green crack, crack, the green crack has a very, um, it's a, it's an early, the cut we have is a really early finisher. And um, the mom um, had just been cloned so many times. Um, she, you know, the grower that we got her from um, was going to retire her because it was just not, she, they couldn't keep a, a mother anymore because she just kept flowering after like, you know, uh, you know getting slightly root bound and then she was just boom and so you have to like drastically up pot her and then you get like another foot of growth and then she's doing it again and so but the smoke is just amazing and uh you know this is something that i wanted to preserve so i threw the i threw but i also wanted to improve the that trait because it's really annoying (laughs) and uh so I, i the structure of the northern lights was like the perfect matching for her and like these are just amazing looking plants now i'm really stoked but that early trait um that um that i was just talking about with that with those males that's definitely one that um will pop out if you're using um you know uh, early flowering females you'll if those are in the mix but i mean if that's a that's also a good sign though if you're working on outdoor lines that you're trying to um you know reduce the finishing time on um that can be useful to know that that's in the gene pool. So like you're generally like through a little bit of selection, you can find what you're looking for without that auto flowering trait. That makes sense. Um, have you had any issues, have you had any issues with 24 hour flowering? I've noticed particularly with CBD lines. Um, if I keep them in 24 hours of light, they'll, they'll throw kind of these, uh, just a handful of flower clusters from the stems. Uh, have you had any issues with that as far as you know prolonged lighting causing stress that that flower early uh yeah i mean that's one of the stress testing techniques that i use um in our selections is uh you know everything gets you know goes through a round or their veg under 24 hours light uh for two months and then flowered out um and we also do the uh what is it the 12, one, you know, lights on for, for 12 hours, then off for six, then on for one, then, you know, uh, so we do all kinds of funky photo period stuff to, to test out the, you know, that, and I mean, definitely a 24 hour light, uh, cycle. I don't recommend, um, 
using that, especially with land race stuff. I feel like that's one of the places where people go wrong a lot, especially from seed. If you're, if you, if you've cloned the mother like two or three times and she's had a chance to kind of adapt to the, you know, your setup, um, you'll probably not have any crazy issues, um, from my experience, but just for, for ease of growth, um, I just, I recommend staying away from the 24 hour photo period, uh, for veg. It's not going to, you're just having diminishing returns after, and really after like 16 to 18 hours, you're not, you know, there's really no benefit you're going to see from having that extra light. So, um, but it's a really good way to stress test your, uh, if you're doing a preservation project and it's like your F2s or F3s, um, I would definitely recommend doing the, doing that <laughs> 24 hour. Someone, uh, someone else in chat asked, what type of lighting do you recommend for land race strains if they have to resort to artificial lighting? Um, right now, like our entire uh, new facility is all um, LEDs. Um, Ryan is kind of the uh, expert here when it comes to uh, LEDs. I've always been uh, a blue metal halide guy. So um, I find that with land races, um, generally um, uh, 400 watts in a four by four, um, you know, um, blue, you know, metal halide bulb is just like a solid, uh, a solid setup for growing any land races, um, with that extra UVB. Um, I just have had much better results, um, than with HPS. Um, but so far what I've seen with LEDs has just blown my mind. And if someone is growing in a confined space with, with, um, land races, I 100% recommend trying out some LEDs. Make sure you have the right amount of juice um, as far as lighting, I guess, for your space. But if you do, you're going to have much, much, much smaller uh, internode spacing, which yeah. makes all the difference with some of these equatorials. And uh, it's um, and the root growth um, has just, <laughs> just blown the road. The reason that I personally, the reason that I really like using the LEDs, the bar style LEDs in particular to grow um, a lot of these land races is because uh, historically I've, uh, I really like growing some of these stretchier, longer flowering cultivars and uh, in uh, pretty height restricted spaces like basements. And uh, with these bar style LEDs, um, there's, they don't throw off that much heat. And if you're, if you have a spectrum that's, um, that isn't too far towards the red, you won't run into too many bleaching issues once they grow up. Like you can have, I've had plants grow up through the lights and had them not bleach and not do anything funky just because like if you're running the lights at low enough, uh, low enough power draw and low enough light, the, the plant will just, it'll be fine and will love it because the leaf surface temperature and the surface temperature on the buds isn't like going through the roof. Like if I, if I grew, if I grew the Michoacan up in, into a, a thousand watt HPS, you'd have all sorts of problems, right? <laughs> but I, I've had you'd that one. Fire. Yeah, you'd literally it'd be the end, the end of it all. But uh, I've had uh, a Michoacan get a little bit too tall and grow up through the bars and these lights, and it's it's been just fine. Um, and the other reason I like it too is that you have a lot more control over your um, 
over the intensity of the lighting and in some cases the spectrum of the lighting depending on your makeup light and when you're working with varieties from all over the world that can really give you an extra edge in dialing in your indoor environment to do something that like that particular cultivar is going to like a little bit better based on where it's come from so i know like right now uh we're, we have a couple equatorial varieties for seedlings and we have them under a a much brighter light than we did for a lot of our other more commercial varieties. And they're responding really well to it. Like the moment we uh, we upped the intensity of the LEDs and brought the light down a little bit, they just started to shoot up. Whereas for uh, some of the other varieties we're growing, like uh, some of the modern hybrids and some of the hash plant varieties, you'd want to keep that light higher up and on a lower intensity and they're going to respond better to that so it's just i think it's just it allows you to dial in a little bit more control and leds have they've gotten there um, it's really quality lighting and the plants respond well and i found that it has a really like the flowers that i've grown under leds have a really well developed terpene profile and good resin content also a lower power bill if you're growing something that takes oh six months to finish okay yeah i had i had uh there's one LED that I calculated it cost me like less than 10 bucks a month to run in my bedroom per fixture. It's like really, really low power draw with a lot of these Not with a ridiculous amount of light you can get off them too. And you can also run them in a large, if you have a larger commercial facility, you can blast in full power up on the ceiling if you want a lot of headroom to grow a lot of these more equatorial varieties. Solid penetration out. too. Solid yeah. canopy penetration. Um, penetration. Yeah, I know. It's like bee buds, like lowers that are resinous and well-developed. Especially with the bar style, you're going to get that way more than like a chip on board style where it's coming from one point. I think having the uh, having the light coming from multiple points not only just adds a ton to the diffused light that's getting to the bottom of the canopy, but it also, it reminds, it's more like the plant being outside under the sun, just it's where it's all coming from all sides. Like if you go and I imagine, so you take your par meter outside, I imagine you'd get a way higher reading in, uh, in lower down places just because the diffused light that's scattering from all around from the sun versus like under a if you stuck it under a canopy full of like metal halide lights that where it's coming from individual points so there's just a lot a lot of different advantages that i've personally found really fun to play around with as a cultivator Awesome. Well, um, is there any other traits maybe on the female side that you want to talk about? You've talked so much about the male side. Is there anything on the female side that are, you know, uh, things where you're, oh man, I got to definitely keep this strain or man, we got to trash this. This cut's not going to work. I mean, I generally try to hold on to everything until I've had a chance to smoke it. Like everything that makes it past, you know, like the first you know, the obvious, even like the runs, I tend to like, I don't, you know, if something's, you know, uh, you know, late to sprout compared to its siblings, like I'm still going to keep it in there because just through experience, like I've, I've had, you know, some of my best plants have come from those, those little stragglers that suddenly just, they take off and they're, you know, just outstanding and an effect and, and aroma and taste and, you know, uh, resin content. So, I mean, I think you really like, 
I think the effect of the effect, if the effect sucks, then that's not going to make it through. Um, and I think so like a solid effect, um, zero intersex traits. Um, I mean, depending on the cultivar, if it's something that you're getting like a 5% intersex rate and it's something that you need to preserve, like that's, that's different. But I mean, um, you know, uh, and then branchiness too, like that's, that's a big thing, like structure too on the females, like stuff that, um, is just going to be, uh, I'm looking for a certain structure. I look for trainability, um, something that a patient could grow us, you know, um, a small number of plants to, you know, adhere to their plant count, um, but still be able to train the plant, um, you know, in a way that's going to yield them enough, you know, supply of medicine to get them through that at least two months or however, four months until they harvest their next round. Um, so I tend to select for like, um, branchiness. I really like vine, like, you know, structures. I like things that are going to at least double in size. Um, you know, once they're flipped, um, you know, uh, that's one of the things I love about Mexican lines is they have that, they almost all have that, that trait and, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of what I mean, like, yeah, resin smell, um, but effect is just paramount because that's why we're growing it. You know, it's, it's the effect. And like, um, you know, the, if the structural, you know, uh, parameters are met, then your yield's going to be on point. And so like, just by selecting for effect, lack of intersex traits, um, you know, and of course, like the same thing that I was talking about with them, with the males is, you know, um, selecting against the, uh, you know, the rapid, um, you know, heavy, heavy pre-flowering and that slow, um, anything that gets, that starts to flower when it's root bound has to go. Like, it's just, um, cause that traits in there and I tend to not, that's not going to make it through into the next generation. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I guess pest resistance too. I mean, like that's also paramount, um, pest resistance, uh, mold and mildew resistance, anything that's going to, if something molds on me in my indoor garden, it's never going to, never going to grow it again. Um, cause that's, you know, uh, not acceptable. <laughs> um, if my, if my environmental conditions are like on point and it's still doing that, that's like, you know, I'm not going to keep it around. I don't want to have to grow something and I want to flower something at like 30% humidity just to make sure I can make it through, you know, like, um, I've grown some like cuts of master kush that, you know, we're at, you know, you look at them wrong and they, you know, turn to mush and like a fairly decent indoor setup, you know? And so I think that's, that's definitely one thing that, uh, you know, if I see in a, in a description of a seed line on a website where it says, um, watch, you know, be vigilant for, you know, for mold in the last two weeks of flower, uh, or watch the watering. I'm, I'm not going to buy that line because, um, I, in my mind, that's just, you know, not the best selection to have passed along. And I, and I personally wouldn't grow that because if there's a chance, you know, that I'm going to have my, my whole crop ruined by botrytis indoors, like that's not something I'm really down to endure. And then pest resistance too. Like it's, um, I feel like you should, you know, um, you should not have to use a bunch of pesticides to grow a cannabis plant you know, unless you're introducing 
outside pests that are cannabis specific, you know, like powdery mildew and, and, uh, you know, like russet, my hemp russet mites or the hemp aphid or, uh, anything that's just designed to kill cannabis, um, you know, aside from those things, like you really shouldn't be having to do much more than have like a healthy biome, you know, in your room. Like you should have, um, that should be a trait that's being selected for anytime. It should be right up there with every other selection criteria, you know, effects and otherwise, like that's just absolutely important because that's part of the thing like that we all enjoy about growing weed is it's fun. Like it's, it should be enjoyable. You should go into your garden and be like, it should be like paradise. You should just, you should go there and enjoy spending time with your plants instead of the people, you know, I've been there myself. So it's like, you go into the garden and it's like, fuck, like, why <laughs> I, I just sprayed you like now, why is this happening? And you're like, um, it's, a, it becomes just like a tedious chore sometimes and you're battling stuff. And that's, that's has so much to do with genetics. And um, so all the varieties that like we work are, you know, they don't get released until, you know, um, those criteria are met and we can say, this is going to be a resilient plant. Um, Cause like our, like most of our, I mean, all of our work, like I'm a, I'm a cannabis patient, you know, Ryan's a cannabis patient yeah. and like it's medicine for us. And so, and like the, you know, um, there are people out there who, you know, don't, you know, can't consume cannabis that's been sprayed with anything um, or they don't have the energy. They want to grow their own, but they really don't have the, they barely have the energy to get out of bed. They can water their plants, you know, or whatever, but like uh, they shouldn't have to sit there and like worry about fighting off some kind of plague that, that, you know, um, is going to potentially ruin their entire crop of medicine. Well, and then if, especially with the, with the, the rather uh, prohibitive plant counts that we're, we're facing uh, on the West Coast, like here in Oregon, you can, uh, if you're a medical patient, uh, you can grow what, like two more plants than you can if you're a recreational patient, if you yeah. don't want to register your home address as a grow site. So that's like, imagine, I don't know, I, I've been in the position before where I'm growing a couple, I've only been able to grow like a couple plants at a time one year you know, or like where I've like uh, been relying on having those as my head stash and just personal medicine. And then I get to the end of the season and because of uh, the combination of uh, grower error, but also poor genetics or bad selection that's been done or poor maintenance of clone stock that I've gotten the clones from or something happens and then your crop is decimated. And not only is it just really tragic to see your like your plant babies die on you but also it's like oh crap that was my medicine for the rest of the year and now what am I going to have to do because I certainly don't want to have to pay to buy recreational cannabis like I don't want to have to resort to other forms of medication that don't work for me as well as cannabis does whether that be pharmaceutical uh, from a doctor or something else you know I think that's there's and I know that like we're far from the only people who experienced that. That's a pretty ubiquitous experience if you've been growing medically for long enough. And I think that's uh, something that's super important to keep in mind from a breeder's perspective is uh, what's the experience going to be like for the person who is, yeah, like for the big commercial cultivator who's growing out a bunch of different plants or a bunch of clones of the same plant, but also like 
the home cultivator who's relying on their plants for medicine and is going to pop a couple seeds and have those plants grow out and then that's it and what they get is what they get you know absolutely um is there any uh is there any traits where if someone was doing uh, phenotyping um, that you could recommend for people where man if they see that they like absolutely need to like preserve that strain a thousand percent like trifoliates are kind of semi-rare um, and kind of a little bit more or some of the other stuff. What are some of the different traits that, that you kind of are like, man, if I saw that mutation, I would not let that go for anything. Well, if, if anyone sees any more selenidine dominant terpene profiles pop out of anything, definitely uh, keep that one around. It's not, uh, so far, the Michoacan is the only place that I've ever seen that happen. That's one that comes to mind for me. Um, I, don't know. I like I like fasciation. I think that's really cool. Um, it's not the most advantageous thing sometimes from a production standpoint, but I just think from a botany standpoint, I think fasciation is neat. So. I actually just saw a fasciated hemp plant a couple of weeks ago for the first time in a little, or probably three or four years. That I had seen that mutation. So, and I, it was cool to kind of take pictures of it, you know, from the side and the front. In fact, give me a minute, I could probably pull it out. Did uh, Wes, did you or Cascadian have any other questions while I'm finding this stuff? I'm good. Yeah, I'm, I'm blanking right now. I'm sure there's more in there, but it's not coming to my tongue. What are some other breeding projects you guys are working on right now? Anything in the, else in the works other than that Nigerian project you were talking about? Uh, I'm working on some Zimbabwe uh, open pollination from some stuff I got when I was over there. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay, that's, that's fun. I would you know. love to... Uh... <laughs> play around I got a whole list of things I'm working on I'm also working on a northern lights project nice um, my oh wow oh it's crazy wow intensely fascinated that's awesome I've seen that in a lot of Moroccan stuff uh, there's some, uh, some a guy on Instagram who goes under the name of Hetty Mulch has a fasciated orissa pheno. It's, uh, it's present in other Indian populations. I feel like I've seen it a lot in uh, older hash plant populations. Uh, uh, you know, think uh, I think it's you know like from just like highly inbred populations of. Um, It'll be interesting to see what that fasciation does to the top cola. Uh, yeah. Those always turn out interesting. But yeah, my uh, the two clone only cultivars that I've come across that work best for me and my my pain and inflammation. Uh, Pre-98 Bubba Kush and in any really of the pure Kushes, but the one I'm favorable on the most is the, the Hollywood pure Kush. It's the, oh, yeah. Bubba, the Bubba type. So I've got 
Northern Lights number one and Northern Lights number five seeds. And uh, I'm going to take them both and pollinate the pre-98 Bubba and the Hollywood Pure Kush. They're all semi kind of quasi related. So I'm hoping to use either the one or the five for the pre-98 Bubba back cross project and then do the same for the Hollywood Pure Kush. Do a back project. Those are be some nice plants. Sounds like some good meds too, like the I combined with the Bubba. That's all. Are there any? Um, have you ever? Have you encountered any like other land races that have worked really well for you for your pain? I've I've acquired a bunch, but I haven't grown them all out yet. That's I'm trying to get through a couple of these like commercial worked genetics so that I can set it all down and go completely nuts with the land races i've got uh i think there's five afghanis and five pakistani lines the two nepalese and the two manipuri i was telling you about the colombian and the angola i've got a durban poison line uh, i've got uh, a thai line and something that's that's either i'm pretty sure it's rumored to be the Oaxacan from Brothers of Eternal Love but if it doesn't turn out to be the Oaxacan it's some um, uh, it's that the one that starts with the M I can't ever say it right M-I-C-H uh, A-O-C Michoacan Michoacan yeah it's either yeah. Oaxacan or Michoacan um, I won't really know till I grow it out so oh, I know I'd love to love to see some pictures of what the flowers from that look like when you grow it out. See if that looks like any of the Michoacan or Oaxacan we've been working with over here. Yeah, I got forty of those, so whatever it is, it's, I'm gonna be able to do some pretty nice selections out of it. Oh, that's exciting! Yeah, we, had a, we had a question from chat, and I've wanted to ask you this for a couple of times over the course of the episode. Um, what is your method or what is your preferred methods for popping very old seeds? I know I'm a big fan of seed sprout tea using fresh seeds like corn or something else to, to germinate them and then taking that water and, and popping them. Um, what, what methods are you using? Um, it's probably seems too simple, I guess. Um, but I just put them in soil. <laughs> <laughs> Literal dirt. Um, I'll do like a, you know, a little scarification with peroxide, um, especially like on the older stuff or stuff that I don't know exactly the, what was going on in the garden. I got it from, um, if they were donated to us. Um, but yeah, just, um, I guess patience and, you know, a little peroxide scarification sometimes do a little, you know, rough up the exterior with uh, sandpaper or like a, uh, emery board. Um, and then just like peroxide scarification. And then, you know, I'd make a little divot in the soil, put a little bed of worm castings, a little mycorrhiza powder, drop the bean in, cover it, um, and just keep it moist and keep it kind of out of the light. So it doesn't dry out. Just keep it kind of off to the side and it's going to you know, take two or three months sometimes, um, sometimes longer. Um, but that's like, that's the most, um, I've had the most success using that method for growing beans that are like 20 plus years old, um, and getting them to sprout. Um, I've had to manually crack a few of the older Mexican stuff, um, 
that hadn't been sprouted since like the mid eighties. Um, but generally, yeah, just like lightly scarifying, um, and then in the soil and just keep it moist, uh, have like a nice, uh, create a nice little, uh, healthy biome in the soil and, um, you'll have a sprout. It's just, it's, if they're viable, they're going to sprout. It's just going to take longer. You just kind also, um, like vernalization, like having, putting them, put them in the freezer for two weeks and, uh, that'll generally increase the success rate, you know, fairly substantially, um, especially with lines that are, you know, from like the Hindu Kush or like anywhere where it gets cold in the winter, you know, any mountainous stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my method, I guess. The technique I've always gravitated towards is, is pretty similar. It's to, to use basically a peroxide wash to minimize any sort of um, pathogens and then re-inoculate the seed coat with either a compost or an earthworm castings extract. Yeah. And then go about your normal germination protocol, whether that's some people do it, you know, in a paper towel, some people do it right in the dirt. Some people do it in a, like a root riot or a iHort, uh, uh, not Rockwell, but uh, peat moss cube. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the sterilization and then the reinoculation seems to shift the balance away from the fusarium or anybody else that could be living on the seed coat that's going to do the seed in before it can even get its head out of the soil. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I'm really curious about like there's any degrad and this is going to sound super hippie, but do you guys feel like there's any degradation to using peroxide washes from the point of view of, of losing some of those native microbes? I know that's kind of hokey, but it's just a, I feel like a, a, I wonder if in like 10 or 20 years that we look back on that the same way that we do with, uh, you know, baking your soil in the oven. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No, I hear that. Um, yeah, I mean, like probably there, there's definitely there definitely is some. I don't think it sounds hokey at all. Like I, I, I do think that um, there's probably some for sure. There's definitely like loss of uh, some of the indigenous microbes, but also, um, you know, it's <laughs> there's also the loss of the whatever. I mean, yeah the fusarium, you know, uh, just anything that's going to cause damping off, um, especially with those older beans. It's just like, you know, in my mind, you know, it outweighs, um, you know, if the beans are 20 plus years old or even like, yeah, I mean, 20, like 20 years old, that's when I've had, like when, you know, you start to have issues uh, generally, if you've stored your seeds, right, your beans should be good. If they're organically produced beans, your beans should be solid for, you know, 15 to 20 years if they're stored properly before the germination rate starts to go down. Um, so, but if it's those older beans that are from, especially if they're like selected, you know, uh, on site and they've just been sitting in the freezer, um, I just always do that just for peace of mind because, um, you know, they're, it's, it's just, I don't know, the, the rarity and the preciousness of those genetics kind of outweighs the other stuff in my mind. 
but if they're just beans from my garden, they just, you know, they just go right into the soil, worm castings, mycorrhiza, and um, yeah, I mean, they just kind of do their thing. I kind of look at it from a bigger point of view. Some of the the older seeds, eventually they have the capacity to grow like a seed you would expect. Uh, but the sterilization part and the re-inoculation part's important when in those first few stages, a lot of it takes place before the seeds even broke the soil. And the seed doesn't have really any vigor so if there is some sort of uh, pathogen it's very easy for that pathogen to overcome the low energy status of the seed at that point but once the seed starts to photosynthesize and get some roots under it it's it, it's more capable of fighting that off but that's where the the sterilization comes in mind for me is is when you start to see that that seed batch has a loss of vigor uh, and it can no longer outcompete any potential pathogens. It kind of needs that babying along. It would be interesting though to see um, if if the the sterilization aspect isn't necessarily needed as long as you do a proper re-inoculation of it. Um, but at this point in time, with the seeds I've collected it's really hard to risk any one of the seeds that are that old just because there's not that many of them. Yeah. Um, in, in 20 or 30 years when we've had this conversation for 20 or 30 years and we have a, a couple thousand seeds instead of 10 or 20, then you can kind of, you have the, the preservation kit basically to risk a portion of them to find out the answer to that. But I would hate to try to learn the answer and in doing so lose the line. So um, I agree. I totally agree. It's a, it's a really fine teeter totter of a balance trying to find when the different things are appropriate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I know at least on the um, on the old seeds, I've had really good luck again, like we were talking about earlier, just with with sprouting something that sprouts really fast, cucumbers, corn, uh, other things that just have a really fast germination rate, uh, and then straining that water off, putting it in like maybe a half of a, a coffee mug, right? Filling it up about halfway, putting your seeds in maybe a, a quarter of the cup and then filling it up maybe a half or two thirds of the way. Uh, waiting for all them to germinate 24 to 72 hours later, depending on what it is that you're doing, and then straining that water off and then putting your seeds in there because the, the germination hormone is the thing that, that you know, degrades the most from desiccation. So um, if you can um, get that to, um, I, I don't remember the exact hormone because I'm a bit tired today and it's, I've been, you know, it's been a long week, but uh, moving and all the rest and unpacking and all that stuff. But um uh, that, that is the thing that tends to degrade with the super, super, super old seeds. And you can kind of replace that with a different, um, you know, seeds, uh, hormones uh, to kind of wake them up. I've had really good luck with that, with especially, you know, stuff from the 70s and 80s. Wouldn't have you ever taken those um, seed, not, not your cannabis seeds, but the other seeds? Have you ever taken that water with those seeds and run it through a blender and then strained it up? 
I, I haven't. Um, I just never thought to do that. But it's definitely a, a, something that I'll have to try it on a side by side, especially once I get a little more set up. We'll have a couple of different places where I can set plants up and side by sides and stuff here, hopefully. So we'll uh, we'll be able to do that a little bit more. Just be interesting to see if you could extract more of the, like if you could almost blitz it up and then let it sit for a couple more hours to see if you could get some more of that to dissolve into the solution. Some sprouted barley. Only coot was here. <laughs> oh yeah. Something that uh, we're talking about um, sprouting hormones. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're talking about a seed sprouting hormones. So it's definitely I've uh, found uh, has helped me with uh, batches of seeds that I've had trouble germinating. Is doing a soak uh, like six hours in some coconut water. Or um, I like to use the powdered coconut water that you reconstitute in tap water. Um, and uh, that, that stuff is really great because it's full of, uh, of gibberellic uh, acid. Um, not in a, in a super high concentration, but just, just enough to kind of give it an edge because that is also a, <clears throat> a hormone that uh, seeds will use to sprout. And I found that uh, that's it's been helpful in some of the populations of seeds that i've gotten or uh come across that aren't having a great success rate or that are uh poorly made or something like that i want to hear like, more about this zimbabwe land race you're talking about i had so i went up to Inyanga, so on the border of mozambique the zimbabwe side of the mozambique zimbabwe border up in the mountains and got a bunch of seeds. So I'll be doing an open pollination of all, basically all the different stuff I got in Zimbabwe, um, uh, just open pollination um, uh, to back cross that and, and bulk it out, right? And then I wanna give away a bunch of that to, to let people go because people don't get access to that shit ever, right? And no. I, I have plenty of other things in my life to help pay my bills. I'd rather help get those genetics out and preserved and you know fight people like the Monsantos of the world and the Phyloses of the world that's uh, much more that's really cool that's i i have not seen uh i i've never come across any beans from zimbabwe that's like zimbabwe is such a you know they had so many issues politically and and otherwise there that and and a lot of the stuff up on the malawi side uh, up in the northern part of the country has, has been crossbred because the malawians we're, we're bringing in a lot of foreign genetics in order to, to for export reasons, right? So that stuff is a little more contaminated. Um, but if you get into southern um, uh, Zimbabwe, like Inyanga South, uh, so anywhere from like about halfway uh, into the uh, down in the country south, that part of the country on the mountainous side towards Mozambique is really where there's still a lot of really good um, high quality. Uh, Un, unfucked with uncontaminated genetics that I personally saw with my own eyes. You know, really nice, huge sativa plants that look like you know the stuff you used to see in old school uh, high times uh, magazines and shit. I posted some on my Instagram when I was cruising cruising through down there. We went down to to Swaziland and everything else. I posted some pictures there. Um, I didn't post all the pictures I took there because of of a couple of the reasons to make it not blatantly obvious where the farms are, but. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. 
That's awesome. I'm going to scroll back through Instagram and look for this because that's, yeah, that's awesome. I hope to, I have some stuff set up tentatively with, with this next South African trip to kind of do another little bit of a, uh, you know, my own little bit of a, a seed hunting tour. So that'll be a lot of, a lot of fun. And uh, I'll definitely be sure to get as much footage as I can. A lot of times too, though, like, they're just like no fucking cameras, but we'll, we'll talk, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's not a problem too. Yeah. But also to remember guys, like I mentioned earlier, if you're going to go to these places, bring bubble bags. They're far easier to get through airports. If you get stopped with them, it's not really a big deal. Most of the time, the police have no fucking idea what they are. Uh, and um, it, the trade value is worth way more than bringing genetics and you're not contributing to the pollution of the, the genetic pool. So um, uh, if you're going to go to these places, you know, bring that for trade value. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, did you guys have anything else you wanted to share? We've been keeping you guys for quite a while. We've had a quite a wonderful episode talking about quite a cool, different, diverse range of different topics, especially with genetics. Uh, I mean, really interesting episode tonight. I really appreciate all the knowledge you guys are dropping. Oh, this was really fun. It was a great time. Thanks for having us, man. Um, I guess it's just like... How to find you guys. So, yeah, so on Instagram um the like land race preservation society um and then uh we are we have a new site the new that our current website will, will populate if you you know click on the link in our bio um but we have a new site that's uh, about to be launched um just for just putting the finishing touches on it uploading inventory right now uh yeah there it is <laughs> <laughs> So like if, um, you know, we're, we're taking email orders right now. Um, so people that are interested in picking up some genetics can uh, email us at the Land Race Preservation Society, one word, at Gmail. And uh, keep an eye on our Instagram uh, because we'll be announcing in the next, uh, within the next week, um, the new site. Uh, so, and it's going to be um, a lot streamlined ordering and uh just it's gonna be um it's gonna be pretty cool and, and uh ryan's gonna be doing a bunch of write-ups uh for the blog and detailed grow reports and strain descriptions and um yeah and lots and lots of freebies um really cool stuff and uh yeah i'm really excited um also um in chat or in the description We'll have a link to their social media. Unfortunately, with seed stuff, we have to be very careful. We've gotten strikes in the past. So we'll only have links to the social media, but from there you'll be able to find their website. So I do apologize that we're unable to link those directly, at least on the YouTube link. Uh, if you're listening to this in audio format, those links will be available. Awesome. Um, did you guys have anything else you guys wanted to share with us before we... Uh, uh, cut you guys loose it's been a really wonderful episode no man this has been really awesome i am uh you know i'm i love coming on here and this is really fun chatting you guys yeah it's been really really great talking to you guys today and thank you again for having us on this is a really fun time yeah thanks for letting me on steve it's been a pleasure dude heck yeah love having so, you guys on and uh 
Uh, you guys are always working on different land race projects. We'd love to have you guys on uh, kind of semi-regularly to talk about the different land race stuff. I mean, gosh, I think you guys have had some of the most interesting answers to what to look for. I mean, I've literally asked, it's one of the things I love asking people as breeders and other things, what do you look for for male traits? And I think you've had some of the best answers that I've had probably to date um, tonight. So uh, really yeah, right on, man. <laughs> And uh, uh, awesome. Well, thanks so much. You guys can check them out at Land Preservation Society. Well, you guys are welcome to hang out. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Cascadian and Wes what they've been up to. And then if Marty ends up showing up, uh, if he comes back, he had to put his kids to bed and he's supposed to come back. I actually have a whole bunch of slides. Uh, we were going to show you guys on his latest greenhouse stuff, depending on whether or not he comes back. But um, what have you been up to, Cascadian? I'm working on this, waiting for it to finish, this Blue Dream mishmash, for lack of a better term. Um, I got this cross in pollination where Blue Dream's the grandma on both sides. Uh, the mother's from Snow High's Blueberry Blast. It's the Blue Dream cross to Johnny Blaze, and Johnny Blaze is a, it's a haze female blueberry male on blue dream which is a blueberry female and a haze male so they're kind of opposite and then laid on each other like that got pollinated with uh blue dream grape soda skunk and the grape soda skunks uh mean gene work so i'm really excited to see what what comes out of that particular project the the male was a beast I had the uh blue dream structure with the grape soda skunk density on the the flower clusters so and then it had more of a a grape soda skunk stem rub. You could you could just smell it on the stem rub that it wasn't Blue Dream. Um, the Blueberry Blast lady is pretty special to me. She's I popped 140 seeds or north of 140 seeds, and for whatever reason, she was the only one that actually grew into a full size plant. Uh, most of them didn't germinate. A handful of them germinated, but just gave out between two inches and 10 inches. And she's the only one that made it. She's a really hazy leaning lady. So it'll be interesting to see the haze with the, I'm hoping to keep the haze head high, the blue dream structure. And I, I really like that blue dream color. It's got this steel blue kind of color to the flowers and, and leaves. But I want to see some grape soda skunk flavor kind of infuse that. So if I can keep the haze high with the blueberry or the, the blue dream structure with the grape soda skunk flavor, that'll be a uh, a home run, per se. Um, then I got the, the Northern Lights projects I was talking about a little while ago. I'm running a couple testers. And I've got a whole slew of things coming up, but. That's the real excitement. The The Colombians are on deck and then the Northern Lights number one is on deck uh, to go into the tents on the next rounds. So it'd be pretty fun to have some some updated Northern Lights number one seeds and then the pre-98 Bubba Northern Lights number one cross and the uh, 
the Nigerian Colombian and the Vietnamese Colombian, those are going to be wild. And then to just have the Colombian uh, refreshed because those haven't been popped in over 10 years. They're, they're pretty old seeds. So that'll be exciting just to have some not haze Colombians because haze is just a three-way cross of various Colombians, but to get outside of the haze box will be exciting too, to see what kind of gems are really in that when I have more seeds than I started with. Um, then I've got a, I've got some testers from mean gene that I got to get through. He sent me some, there's a clone he has called sweat. And then he's got that lime line. So I have, I I'd always think of it as sweaty lime. So that's not what he calls it, but it's sweat crossed to the lime. And those are super exciting to, to get into. And then down the road, uh, he also sent me some of the root beer back cross three. So I got to get into some more of those and see they're not stable indoors. So um, the first round that I went through, I had 30 something plants in the flower tent. I had some power issues and the lights came on awkwardly so a bunch of them hermed because they're not stable indoors anyway but i had one lady out of the the whole batch that didn't flinch she's uh she just was female through and through and then another lady was a lady boy but a a, a complete standout so i ended up keeping a cut of her too to see if the clone has the same issues that the seedling has and I've since fixed the power problem so the lights are no longer doing their weird stuff so we'll see if she herms on me again um, but the plan for that is to to try to keep the root beer essence and uh, work out the intersex traits for a, a, an indoor stability wing of that line and then to get those back to Gene um, it's also about time that I do another open pollination of Mr. Green Jeans Cherry Bomb, which is a 1979 Maui Wowie IBL with uh, the, the standout phenos in that line are, are a, a metallic cherry flavor with pink pistols. So it'll be, it'll be fun to get back into those. Um, what else I got cooking up? I got a bunch of land races to get to, but it's a little bit farther down the road. I've got some, uh, it's called mint chocolate chip. It's another one that really lights my fire. Um, it's from Exotic Genetics, Exotic Mike. He put out F2s a few years ago. And I got a 10-pack of the F2s and I looked through them and they were this Fruity Pebbles cereal milk with some gas on top. And I think it was 2019. The, the first year here recently that the fires really ripped through California and tore up a bunch of people's farms. There was an effort in the community to raise some money for um, the people that got pushed out of their homes and lost everything. And amongst those auctions a pack of the mint chocolate chip F1s came up for auction. 
I was lucky enough to, to land those to get around um, Exotic Mike's F1 selections and see if I could find something that was more Fruity Pebbles cereal milk, less gas. And it's, it's totally in that line. So I'm working that wing of the mint chocolate chip line, which is not Exotic Mike's selections, towards that sweet Fruity Pebbles cereal milk expression and away from the gas because it's absolutely delicious that's where my question came earlier for you guys about if you'd ever came across a flavor that you've seen in cannabis that you, you just looked at the weed like this is this does not belong in cannabis because that particular line tastes like nothing other than the, the milk that's left over when you eat a bowl of fruity pebbles um I, I just remember looking at that weed like this can't, if I wouldn't have grown it, I would have thought somebody did something to it, um, which was similar to how, how we felt in this region when blueberry first hit the scene. We were like, somebody sprayed something on this or you put something in the bag or because this is too much blueberry muffins. This weed shouldn't taste like this. I had that same thought process with that mint chocolate chip. Um, I just, it, it can't be real. It just, there's no way this plant makes that flavor combination. And I, it came out of my tent, you know, I didn't spray anything on it. I just gave it water. It's in good organic soil. So it's not a mirage, you know, it was, I mixed all the plants together and cured them all together. And when I went to smoke the whole batch, I couldn't tell one plant from the other really. So I'm really excited to get into those F2s and, and make F3s with those. Um, I, I, I can't lose that line. That line's incredible. Um, I've also, that's, uh, that's similar to the Fruity Pebble OG, which is a clone that gets passed around, but this, this line totally just smashes that that Fruity Pebble OG in my mind, because that Fruity Pebble OG is very similar to what I found in Exotic Mike's F2s. They have, it has a lot of gas on it. You can taste that, that Fruity Pebble cereal milk under there, but it, it's the gas that kind of hides the, the sweetness. And I, I understand some people don't like the sweetness and some people really have a thing for gas, but since that's already out there and the sweet, profile really lit my fire that's that's what i'm going to push those into so i'm really hoping to get to those soon as the weather changes here and i get some some room in the veg tent because right now the northern lights number ones the sweat limes and the uh colombians have me all filled up but that's that's probably it for me for 2021 um 2022 i'm hoping is a lot more land races and a lot less worked genetics so it'll be a whole different ball game come 2022 cool. what about you Wes what have you been living uh I don't got much going on honestly I, no, man Cascadian's got just a list of things going on there but uh uh I got some Lime River rows that are coming out of veg and going into uh flower in the next couple days uh, then I was thinking about, uh, I'm on the fence about popping some, either some big Sir Holy weed or, um, uh, the other one is just this boss skunk pack that I came across. It's supposed to have some 
have some skunk turps like back in the day. So looking in that and see what I find. That's about all. That's what I got on the horizon now. Dude, you should top that big sir. That's that's uh, some fun stuff. That that big sir is a um a derivative of the the Zacatecas from Mexico. Yeah. It's just uh I think it's purple Zacatecas, just it's just inbred into what they call Big Sur Holyweed now. Uh so you'll definitely find some heat in that one. The other one I forgot to mention, um, Steve, maybe you got some insight or maybe somebody else has some insight. I've been trying to track down. So at the same time that GG4 got hit with their lawsuit from that glue company, um, there was a, a cut going around about a, a famous banana brand and it got changed to see banana from uh, Chiquita. And I've been trying to figure out all these years because the the lineage has gotten fuzzy in the banana lines. And I'm trying to figure out where the sea banana comes from. I've had rumor that the sea banana is just a phenotypical expression found in banana OG F3s. But I haven't found hard enough proof to really settle my stomach on that. But I have this, I have this C banana S1, and I recently landed some banana OG F3s. So I need to get into the F3s of the banana OG, but I'm going to use that to pollinate the S1, um, provided I don't find anything in the, the F3s that is just like the C banana S1. But I'm trying to figure out the lineage on that C banana stuff, and I, I just wonder if anybody has any insight. I'm not sure on the banana lines. Marty might know a little bit more than I do, but um, I'm a big fan of the banana lines, but I don't know where where that started from. I know the banana OG originally derived from the, the Zagamartha 6040, um, which had to do with the Indica Sativa expressions in the that particular line, which isn't very... Uh, explanatory but other than that i don't i don't know how the sea banana fits into the banana og family tree and some of that i think it's the sea banana side of things is partially involved in where the freak show stuff came out of but i don't know if those mutations were found in the sea banana side or in the pollen donor side or i'm not sure on that either but I, I know that's that's part of the lineage to those freak show different morphologies that we see on the market now so it's all it's all kind of fascinating for several reasons but the banana flavors are are totally mind-blowing um, yeah i haven't I haven't been able to figure that one out i've been asking everybody i know so Yeah, I've only smoked and I don't think I've ever even grown any banana strains or tried to track down where that's from. But man, it's so tough because, you know, as illegal as it was for so long, it just made, you know, there was so little incentive to even write down what the fuck anything was other than keep tracking your head. You know, 
like let alone communicate it to someone else or post it on the internet or uh, <clears throat> you know do do anything like that it just was so much safer to just slap a new name on something and say this is what it is now because you were better off just not sniffing around so it uh it was so detrimental <clears throat> to the all the lineage tracking that it makes me really sort of distrust almost everything nowadays in terms of like if when people start talking about pure this or pure that um you know i have a hard time believing that unless you have some very documented um and logical explanations for how you are able to track that lineage through such a long and illegal prohibition status um you know I almost consider everything to be backseat <laughs> at some point. Um, you know, like maybe that's just a pessimistic way of looking at it, but man, it just was, it was so anybody who did it when it was still illegal knows, you know, how, how tough it was for everything, for any like information to survive, you know, like it was uh, just really detrimental. So I appreciate the effort that you go to to try and track that stuff down because, man, it's got to be tough. It's, it's definitely a mission that involves a lot of digging, uh, looking through old, old forums and then trying to find those people or the people that they worked with now on like Instagram or the newer formats and try to, you know, repose the question. It's definitely a, an adventure, but I, I enjoy it. I really dig into the lineage and the, the history and who touched it and, you know, how much work did people put into because I, I feel like that's that's half the story you know it's like giving the the credit to the farmers of the land races we've got to also give credit to our own history in the western world and not forget the giants that you know the shoulders that we stand on these days because we're definitely playing it's almost a different plant what we're playing with these days compared to what some of these land races are are working with you know just the the amount of work that's been put in has almost transformed it into, it still has the same properties, but it's almost transformed it into a different beast because it's on such a different level. So I try to really find the, the, the provenance and, and give respect to the people who, who, you know, had the anxiety and the PS, PTSD from doing what they did in the days when it was, you know, putting it all on the line. Mar Marty, uh, you had some cool shit that you've been working on. Is, uh, do you want to give us a little bit of a presentation? Uh, sure. <clears throat> Hang on just a second and finish this. But So we've been working on the, um, the greenhouse. So it'll basically um, be a... 10 foot by 40 foot light dev greenhouse with an aquaponic system. Um, I'll show you guys some pictures here in just a second. But you know, the reservoir, you know, there's basically like a trench that goes underneath the end of the end wall of the greenhouse and into the reservoir. So I'll, I'll show you guys. Oh, Steve, I remember a, a question I meant to ask you weeks ago. Um, there's I'm a bit of a fish nut. There's a, 
I don't currently have my fish tanks set up, but I'm just getting back into being an Aquarius or having more aquariums than I have living space. Um, and there's setups in aquariums where you basically don't have to change the water. Everything, the, the amount of fish, the amount of plants, the amount of light, it's all in harmony. And you can go, you know, you change the water for the fun of it kind of thing. Um, have you ever had an aquaponics system set up where you didn't really have to change the water? Um, yes, we, we don't change the water on most of our systems. We'll do maybe a 5% water change per year with a couple of exceptions. Like if the sulfur, if for, you know, we're running an organic certified system, the sulfur can kind of slowly build up on us. Um, if we're doing a, uh, in certain parts of the country, sodium, uh, simply from the tap water, uh, even with filters over enough time becomes a problem. Um, you also can have uh, issues with some fish food inputs causing a slow, uh, heavy metal buildup um, over time. Or um, if you go crazy with kelp extract, which we've talked about previously on the show, um, can also get you into trouble with um, heavy metal buildup. So uh, outside of those things, um, uh, uh, we don't generally have to ever do a water change. The, the, fit, you know, the plants export all the nitrogen. Um, that generally is the thing that kills the fish. So uh, unless you're in very acidic conditions, um, you can survive really crazy levels of ammonia and nitrogen levels um, uh, if the watt pH is very low. And if the pH, you know, is is any kind of high at all, you know, seven or higher, those fish are toast, right? Like they're out, you're just going to die instantly. Uh, so, um, the, the, you know, the, I guess that'd be a little bit on that, but. Um, uh, uh, generally, what we do for most of the commercial setups is we'll have maybe a couple of wicking beds in front of the facility, and we'll throw some you know community vegetables in there, and we're just going to top it off with like a little bit of system. We'll do maybe a one or two percent water change, you know, flow through water change on the system per uh, per month, and that just tops off basically the the wicking beds that are sitting out front, and then that food all goes to whoever wants to come pick it, you know, employees or neighbors or whatever. That's awesome. I meant to ask you that weeks ago because it, it's always interesting to me the the zero waste concept, you know, the the uh, sustainability of it all. I think I've gone at, at least um, before I moved uh, over here and had to drain all my systems in order to move them. I think I was going on, my longest system was about three and a half years without a full water change. And my indoor system here has been running for about a year and a half um, without a full water change, just topping off essentially. So can you guys see this screen all right? <laughs> so this is um, the greenhouse that I was talking about. Uh, this is the trench that we had dug and you can see um, on one, on this end, it's only about a foot deep. And then as you get uh, down underneath the other side, <coughs> it's about two feet deep. So you can see a bit better down here. So it's sloped down this way. <coughs> and the media beds will, so we're building down here, we'll go across like this. These still need liner. They just got finished painting, but these will be um, liners. So they're two foot by five foot by a foot deep. And 
there'll be two plans per bed, six beds, and then I'll have one bed for um, food. So it'll be you know, mostly nitrogen absorbing greens um, and maybe like a couple tomatoes or peppers or something fun like that. <laughs> so um, each one of these will just have its own siphon that will just drain right down underneath. And then in between the media beds, I'll have uh, everything is gonna be sealed up. So I'll have like doors that I can remove uh, but this whole thing from <clears throat> this entire thing will be covered from end to end. There'll be a door that folds up on the other side. Um, so it'll be completely sealed and basically be as water efficient as possible. So, um, there'll be, you know, I'll lose very little to evaporation. Um, and we do, you know, need to conserve water in our areas, definitely something that uh, we struggle with here. And so the, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the idea that fish will be down in the bottom, I will probably add some filtration uh, back here in the covered part where the, the deeper part of the water is. I would like to go a little bit deeper um, what my original design was, but I basically live on a rock shelf. So it was basically as much as we could dig out and scrape out um, just to be able to uh, to get that done. Um, but ideally, I, I would like to, to take that a little deeper to help keep a little cooler. But the idea will be that the, the tank will be under the shade um, uh, most of the time and be completely sealed. And then if I want to raise the humidity in the greenhouse, I can remove panels between the media beds and raise the humidity um, just by removing the panels. It'll be full light depth, <coughs> um, which we haven't gotten to building any of that yet, but uh, eventually that'll, that'll happen. We've got some pretty high sidewalls, as you can see over here. Um, and then there's a bug screen that we put up. I think I got a better picture of that here somewhere. Okay. So here, um, this is the bug screen so that when we open up the side, it's not just opening up to every uh, you know, insect in the world. So most of the time uh, in the summertime, uh, this will be completely open uh, whenever it was leave it open. So the light depth will open around it. And these will probably just be on a hand crank. The sides probably won't be full automated. We'll just manually crank them up and down as we want. Um, but we will have a full light depth motor automated. Here you can see Mike building the beds. They're pretty simple boxes. It's plywood on the bottom, two by sixes and two by fours. Nothing too, too fancy. Um, but it really gives the size uh, that you want. Um, even with paying somebody to build the boxes and buying the liner and all the lumber and everything, it's still a lot cheaper than if you bought a prefab media bed um, and I get the exact size that I want. So that's why I went, went with that. So they're just buying media beds that so we're ready to go. Um, eventually there'll be a, a drain um, right here on each one. And there'll also be two overflows that'll be cut so that if uh, you know, bed gets clogged, it'll overflow right back down into the tank as opposed to draining out of whatever random side is the lowest. So we'll just cut a couple of notches and get that. <laughs> so um, 
yeah, other than that, uh, not too much else. That's basically where we're at right now. The bottom half of these will be filled with lava rock, and the top half will be filled with hydrogen as far as media goes. So it really cuts down on the amount of hydrogen you have to buy if you use lava rock in the lower portions. So <clears throat> that can save you some money. I do like hydrogen for like any younger plants or different things you're going to move around or even it's a lot easier on your hands. So that's why I like to do the top layer in hydrogen still. Um, but it can save you a lot of money to do the, the lower layers in lava rock. So, um, so the media will go in, the drain will go in. Um, let's see. Well, I guess the liner will go in first and the drain and the media. And then um, each one will get its own siphon and we'll, we'll fill independently. So, uh, yeah, two plants per bed will give me my 12 plants that I can do legally here in Oregon. So it's pretty much size to be, um, you know, a, a personal medical grow size greenhouse. And how many how many fish would you use to support that grow? Um, in here, I'll probably have somewhere between thirty and forty. I would say small to medium sized fish, so they'll they'll grow a little bit over time. That's pretty similar to what I have in the indoor right now, um, which is actually a larger volume of water. I probably have more. I have about you know eight to nine hundred gallons of water in the indoor. Um, system, which is probably a little high for the amount of plants that I have in there. Just in, in hindsight, I guess I could have cut the size of that tank down a little bit, but um, <clears throat> it, it's pretty easy to scale the design. So here I just cut it down a little bit, but the uh, um, anytime I, I'm calculating the amount of fish that I'm going to put into the system, I take into account both the plant load in, in the oxygen load. So for instance, um, <clears throat> the amount of fish in the system puts a direct load on the amount of dissolved oxygen that you need in the water that's left over even at its lowest point. Right. And then on top of that, it's how much you feed those fish that also can make a difference for nutrient levels. So those are the kind of two different things that I consider um, when I'm trying to calculate what kind of fish load that I want, not so the nutrient load, it's more like pounds of fish, yep, as opposed to number of fish, because you could have a fish this big, or you can have a fish, you know, this big, and they'll consume different amounts of food, um, in order to stay alive on the on the baseline. So even older fish, for instance, they they grow at a slower rate, but they still consume a lot of food and produce a lot of waste, but they don't have as an increasing load on oxygen levels. So <clears throat> those are those are kind of the two things you have to consider. Now, if you have, like, I do all siphon systems, so they're all flood and drain, so that way my, my plants get access to oxygen outside of the water system. So whenever the, the water drains out of my media beds, um, the plants get access to fresh oxygen um, it doesn't come from the dissolved oxygen in the system itself. So if you're in contrast to like a DWC system where you're or a constant height or constant flow system, a, a large portion of your oxygen for your plants is also 
uh, going to be coming out of the water, uh, out of dissolved oxygen. So um, I don't run any air pumps or anything in my system because I do all siphons um, and I have each one of those siphons breaking the surface tension of the water when it goes back in in order to create passive aeration um, at, at multiple points throughout my, my reservoir. So I could probably go with a much higher fish load based on my oxygen levels and, um, and kind of use that to my advantage. But I prefer to have a lower fish density that I feed more often and veg so that okay. I can cut back on fish food when I get into flour. Otherwise you get stuck having to consume a lot of nitrogen out of your system all the way through flour. Whereas if you have, you know, a, a smaller number of fish that you can cut back to their diet to say, um, you know, instead of feeding them every day, you can feed them half as much food every other day and cut it down, cut your, your nitrogen input down to about a quarter of what it was before. And that makes it much more manageable than if you are at a high, if you're maxing out your fish density, um, which maybe you want to do because you're raising fish for food or something else. Um, but if, if you do decide to do that, then you have to go to greater measures to reduce your nitrogen throughout flour or just have a separate system altogether um, with a lower fish density for flour. So those are kind of the um, concerns that I, that I go through when I'm sizing up how many fish to put in the system, you know, how big of those plants are gonna be, um, how much nitrogen am I going to be able to consume? So I'm dedicating an entire bed to nitrogen consuming plants in this greenhouse system that, uh, that will help me also with that swing, but I'll still go for a lower fish density than, uh, than what you would see in a lot of like commercial grows or um, even people who raise fish for food or even for profit. For me personally, I use them as more nutrient tanks or processors than I do um, you know, raising them for any purpose of, of trying to make profit back on them. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much what we're working on right now. It's all framed out. Uh, pretty much as soon as we get the media beds finished up, I think the lava rock is supposed to get here, get delivered tomorrow. So we'll be able to fill them halfway up and start working on the siphons and getting it cycling and I'll throw a couple of fish in there. I am going uh, to swap out a bunch of existing media in my existing beds. So I'll take out a lot of what's in my existing media beds and my existing system, replace that with new hydrogen and take the established media and mix it into each one of these media beds to kickstart uh, the nitrification process and the colonization um, by having already colonized media um, being put in there. So I won't have to have really a large cycle time in order to Uh, in order to get started, I'll be able to start growing plants in it, you know, pretty much right away and um, won't have to worry about um, cycling like you do in a new system without established media. You, know, you might take, you know, three, four, five weeks um, of cycling a system, even with just a couple of fish in it, just to get your, your nitrification process kicked off. But hopefully, um, and I've done this a number of times now, just swapping out established media into new systems, kind of like a, 
know, people used to do with biological filters for your fish tank. If you had a friend that already had a biological filter, you could steal media from them and you could just swap them new ones. Really the same concept of kicking off the media beds. So I'll mix some existing media into each media bed <coughs> as we, we start to cycle it off. So should be should be pretty exciting pretty soon. I, I expect to have good, man. up by like, you know, maybe another week or so before the, the system itself will be running. And then you know, we'll be putting the skin on the greenhouse and start setting up the light depth and stuff as the, as the plants are, are starting to grow. So fun times, good stuff. Looks really nice, man. Good work. Thank you. Appreciate that. Look at my chat, see if we have any questions. If you guys like that type of content, um, also be sure to check out Marty and I put a ton of work into the class and we have live sessions every uh, twice a month as well as a constant stream of new content. Um, be sure to check out our class over apmjclass.com. We have a bunch of different facility tours, uh, a bunch of how-to videos with Marty, much more in-depth on this build as well as other builds that we've done. Um, so if you wanna learn how to do this, both at the home or commercial scale, um, we kind of cover a lot of different stuff, uh, especially on the larger scale. And we're working on some some um, smaller grow content as well. But most of the stuff is geared towards people doing, you know, uh, uh, more than six plants. I'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of information in there, even if you are doing six plants. But um, we cover kind of all the different topics that we've just touched on, but much more extrapolated and in-depth. So definitely check it out, as well as tons of different, you know, cheat sheets, how-to guides, quick guides for identifying issues um, that we photographed on site, tons of different uh, seminars and all different types of references, uh, as well as calculators, um, build lists, and all types of other useful, um, you know, stuff for, for getting into aquaponic cannabis to make it uh, a lot easier if you're trying to make the transition. So be sure to check that out at apmjclass.com. Um, Marty puts a lot of work into it. Uh, I put a lot of work into it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really kind of a unique class, especially in the cannabis world. Um, we cover a lot of unique KNF inputs and kind of a different angle on everything. So be sure to check it out if that's your, your cup of tea. Yeah, that's actually what we're looking at here. But you can see all these different videos are all different little how-to tips and tricks as we went through building the greenhouse. So all that stuff will be available um, on the class greenhouse section uh, as we go through and do that. And we'll be doing... Um, probably at least two more of these builds coming up. Um, so we'll be able to go through each one of those as well. And then also part of the class is we have twice a month, or I should say at least twice a month, we have um, the live sessions where we meet up with class, uh, people in the class and allow them to go through their own grows and ask questions and um, get uh, troubleshooting or answers to questions about content on the class. Uh, you know, kind of whatever it is. So kind of um, nice little, uh, you know, additional avenue to be able to not only just watch the videos and hear us talk about stuff, but to be able to interact, be able to show us stuff in your own grows um, and get answers and like real-time advice about stuff that you're growing. So it's a lot of fun. We have a really good time with it. Um, we try to do one, one weekend and one weekday uh, live class uh, per month. So definitely uh, a lot of fun and super beneficial, especially if you're just starting out. Uh, 
or if you're struggling and having issues, <clears throat> it's a great way to be able to get consistent help and make a game plan. And uh, I have a, we have a ton of new content that we haven't filmed that I have uh, all formatted up with the slide decks and everything as well. We have almost another 50% of the class to add to it since we've recorded the original base class. So we have almost 300 additional slides that we have uh, to record uh, on top of the stuff that's already part of the original uh, seven day class. So um, we, we have just a, a ton of stuff to do. Now that I'm in a finally a more settled space. Um, I actually have the ability and the time to, to film a lot more and the equipment and the growth space to have my own growth set up here as well as Marty uh, to film some different stuff that we haven't had a chance to film for a while because I've been living as more of a nomad and now I have some little bit more grounded roots here at least for a little while. So uh, we'll be able to get some kind of, con you know, different content that we haven't been able to cover. So super stoked on that and um, just super stoked to be able to do a lot more YouTube videos. I have a some quick guides on diseases I'm working on right now. One is septoria, one a mosaic virus. We're going to work on a couple of different more common issues that are maybe misunderstood. Uh, and then just stuff that, hey, if I have really good pictures of something early on um, for you to ID, um, we're going to try and get some of that information out there, you know, and, and, um, and help you guys out that way. So, uh, um, you know, just a ton of, of content, both for YouTube and for the class uh, that'll be in the, in the queue. And then I'm also working on trying to have uh, again, at least minimum of three videos a week now between the live, uh, the recorded uh, interviews and uh, a content video. I wasn't able to get the content video out this week, but um, should be starting up next week. So be, be looking forward to that. And then uh, if you're in Oklahoma, be on the lookout for some super good concentrates here later in September. So super stoked on all that stuff. So um, uh, why don't everybody, uh, well, let's wrap the show up. Um, why don't you tell everybody how to find you there, West Engine? Uh, you can find me over as, at West Engine on uh, Instagram and uh, Cannabis. That's pretty much about it. Uh, over at Chronic Table and uh, uh, Bruise with Buds on Saturday. Oh, yeah. Definitely check us out over at Fumador on the Flavors. Looks like Marty uh, hit the wrong button there, but you can check him out at 8 p.m., Jake. Uh, class.com if you want to check our educational stuff or you can check him out at uh, AP Meds on YouTube or on um, Patreon or on a couple other things. I know he's got a couple of different platforms he's doing content on right now. So definitely check him out there. Um, uh, Instagram as well. Um, so, uh, and then uh, how about you, Cascadian? You'll find me hovering around Fumi Show. Uh, Cascadian grown on Instagram. Uh, hang on Discord a little bit, but um, oh, and then the the Operation Grow Show is on Saturdays. Uh, it's usually one p.m. Pacific time. I've been I've done some breeding primers on various aspects of uh, plant genetics and breeding over there, and I think I'll be on again this weekend. I don't know if I'm giving a presentation or not, but uh, that's Pete. Uh, UK show so they're they're pretty good people too doing a a season of breeding so it's all about breeding projects and breeding knowledge and we touched on that tonight so if you're interested come check it out cool sounds sounds awesome um and then uh you can check out our guest again uh land race preservate land race underscore preservation underscore society on instagram uh, or you can check out their website, uh, landracepreservationsociety.org, uh, if you want to find out more information from our guests tonight. 
thanks everybody for watching. You can find more information on um, my stuff over at Potent Products on SoundCloud, YouTube, uh, iTunes, Spotify, uh, all the things. Um, and uh, we'll catch you guys again next week. I forget who our guest is. I, we have a couple more guests in the queue. We've had a lot of great uh, guests uh, lining up lately to, to come on the show. And um, we have a whole bunch more in the queue. And I'm super stoked, especially now that I'm more settled. And uh, I have some cool roommates now that uh, I think you guys are going to see more often as well. So if you saw the show last night, you know what I'm talking about. So uh, over on Fumi's channel. So uh, we'll have some other cool, interesting characters uh, hanging out with us in person on a more regular basis. So, uh, all right. Uh, thanks everybody for watching. We'll see you guys again. We very much appreciate you guys. We've actually gotten, uh, we hit 10,000 viewers. I feel like it was like a month, a month and a half ago. We're almost at 11,000. We're like 10,700 or some shit. Like you guys are awesome. Uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone that's been supportive of the show and, and helping get the word out.